Hello, everybody, and welcome to the very first episode of Retro Game Explorers. I am one of your hosts, Pete Dore, and I'm joined by my co-host, Bovine Devon. Hello, everyone. So this is a podcast where we're going to be concentrating on retro games and kind of what we've been doing in the collecting world, because the two of us are very big collectors of retro games for all consoles, uh, especially the more unique and obscure stuff out there. And we also, the two of us uh, happen to be two streamers on Twitch that specialize in retro games. Uh, Bovine, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself first and kind of how you got into streaming on Twitch and uh, the kind of games that you like to play? Yeah, no problem, Pete. Hello, everyone. Again, my name is Bovine Devine, and I want to thank everyone for taking the time to listen to our podcast. You have to explain here. that name, Bovine. You have to explain that name. <laughs> we'll How get to that. How did you come with the Bovine Devine name? Okay, we're going to get to that. So we'll definitely save that for somewhere down the line because it's and that's actually not that unique of a story. I actually think I told it on Twitch, but uh, we we can save it for a later time. But again, thank you very much, everyone. My name is Bovine Devine, and. I am also a Twitch streamer that specializes in streaming uh, retro games on real retro hardware on Twitch. And I will say that the person who got me on started on Twitch is, in fact, Pete Doerr. So when um, I decided to look into streaming on Twitch or creating a YouTube channel, one of the first things I found was uh, Pete streaming on Twitch. And I had known Twitch from his YouTube videos, but nothing beyond that. So jumping into his Twitch stream and seeing the kind of content he was producing with uh, playing retro games it really spoke to me and you know it got me along the lines of starting along that path so uh, i've been streaming for about eight months now and i'm excited to be participating in this podcast here with pete and talking to all of you guys about retro games and uh, retro game you know experiences and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast with Bovine is because we do share a lot of the same community. Uh, and if you're listening to this podcast, you know, maybe you discovered us through iTunes or another means through a recommendation from a friend. Um, we do stream on Twitch. We know each other pretty well on there. We actually share pretty much the same community. A lot of our same viewers uh, are in both both streams uh, on Twitch. And... And that way we, we share a lot of commonalities in that we, we know a lot of, we know our audience, you know, we, it's kind of weird to start a podcast where you already know your audience ahead of time. So we know for the most part what people are going to be listening to our show and what they like to hear and they, what they want to hear us talk about. But if you don't know us and you don't know me, um, I started on YouTube back in 2008 in the heyday of, you know, pretty much the best time uh, to be making video game content on YouTube. Um, I'm probably most well known for being one of the first, if not arguably the first person to make collection style overview videos, meaning that when I uploaded a video, say, of my PlayStation 2 collection or my Xbox 360 collection, you pretty much were not going to find a single video of that on the internet Uh, during that time, believe it or not. And I know this could be very hard to believe for some of you that are maybe younger or got into YouTube, you know, within the past few years and the, the retro videos on there, I mean. Um, There was a time on YouTube where none of that stuff existed. All these hidden gem videos and all of these collection videos and room tours pretty much started back in 2008, 2009. Um, And that was sort of one of the uh, originators and pioneers of that style of vlog collecting video where we go over our collections and we share opinions on games. And I did that for still still do it, but we'll get to that at another point. Wait, hold the door. You're saying that... There never, there was not always top ten hidden gems videos for the Atari Twenty Six Hundred. Is that what you're trying to tell me? No, there, there was not. Yes, there was, there was a time on YouTube where, 
you know, searching uh, my game room tour would only bring up like five or ten results. <laughs> there was a time. Uh, and it was it was a great time back then. But um, that leads me into my point of uh, Twitch, which I have been streaming since 2009, back when Twitch was known as Justin.tv. Um, and then eventually it changed over to Twitch.tv. So I've been streaming almost as long as I've been making content on YouTube, though I am on a hiatus from YouTube in lieu of Twitch. Uh, but like I said, that's a discussion for another time, not for this podcast. And the thing that I think the both of us really enjoy most about Twitch, and I've really gotten into it kind of full time in the past uh, just over a year, I've been doing it kind of pretty much full time, is that we're able to share our experiences of playing games for the first time or maybe revisiting an old classic that, you know, maybe some people watching haven't seen before in real time with our viewers and it's sort of an experience that you don't get on YouTube because on YouTube, you only get to know your viewers through comments that are left in sort of like a guest work or it's like a guest book rather, where it's just sort of like leaving their stamp like, oh, great video. I played that game, blah, blah, blah. Whereas on Twitch, it's all real time interaction. You know, we get to really know our viewers on a more personal basis because they show up every stream. They hang out with you every night for hours on end and it's such a great experience and i don't know bovine i don't know if you want to speak to that more of how twitch has sort of been to you since you've started on it uh more recently only in the past eight months yeah it's interesting because i know that my first experience was twitch was maybe i mean i did hear of justin tv i didn't think much of it it didn't seem to appeal to me and didn't have any content i was looking for i just wasn't paying attention to it i happened to have that issue but i remember that the only times i was ever um, on Twitch was when I went to go watch like a Street Fighter tournament. Like whenever there was a big fight tournament that Copcom was hosting for Street Fighter 4, like I would click on the link wherever it was going to be live streamed. And it always ended up being on Twitch. And I didn't know at that time that that was just kind of the platform they preferred. But at that time, you know, I would create an account essentially just to watch a live stream because it wasn't available anywhere else. I didn't even realize that there was a level of chat interactivity or any of this like personal communication you can have with the streamer. It didn't even, it, it didn't, the trigger in me like what it was so i kind of ignored twitch for a really long time because I, if i look at my account i created one back in i think 2015 but that was just merely to watch streams so having no idea what it was it's like you know the only time i ever figured out what twitch actually was was like i said when i started researching to trying to create a youtube channel and i was looking for other content creators and of course i ended up you know checking out your youtube channel because i had been listening to the I had been listening to your podcast before, saw what you were doing on YouTube, and then saw that you were on Twitch now. So the first time my real interaction with Twitch happened was when I jumped into your channel last August. And that was literally the first time that I was in someone's stream, realizing that you were live, and that whatever I was you know, typing in there, you were seeing and responding to me. It was the craziest thing to me that something like this even existed. And, you know, again, that just speaks to me being old and not knowing what the new cool kids apps are. But it was like the newest thing for me. I'm like, this is amazing. How come this isn't everywhere? And like, isn't this, why isn't this the entertainment that everyone is using? Little did I know, obviously, it had been going that route. But, you know, for me, that's that level of interactivity that you get with Twitch and stream. I mean, it's just something that does not exist in any other medium uh, that, that is so accessible that gives you the selection of topics and games and things that you can view. Like to me is replaced TV. I just, I don't even watch TV anymore. I just look for yeah. content on Twitch and it may not mainly it's for me, it's checking out people playing retro games or some modern games, but knowing that you can, you know, stretch out the, you can check around Twitch and see people, you know, cooking and doing art or, you know, having podcasts. It's, it's amazing yeah. to me that 
that Twitch is something that I did had no idea what it was for the longest time, and now I'm like knee deep into it within the last eight months, both as a viewer and a streamer. So yeah, so, and you will hear us talk a lot about Twitch on this podcast because we both stream a lot, especially me. Um, I pretty much stream five or six nights a week. Bovine is usually on the weekends, um, and it's kind of another reason why I wanted to do this podcast with Bovine is because you know. I want to connect with Bovine more because I, I think he's a great guy. We share a lot of common interests in games, and I love his enthusiasm for retro games. And usually our streams either overlap or he starts way after I'm already <laughs> asleep. He starts a little late at night. Um, but So it's kind of a nice way for us to share kind of what's going on between our streams, what we've been playing, kind of recap for both of our communities. And I think a lot of our listeners would... Uh, really enjoy podcasts where we're kind of like just going over the happenings of twitch and we don't want this to be a you know sort of like we don't want this to be thought of as a twitch retro community like we don't want to be known as the faces of any kind of twitch retro podcast by any means we just want to be known as the two of us coming together on a we should say for now it's going to be a bi-weekly podcast so it's going to be every two weeks not every week we're going to see how this fares first and see where it goes from there you know nothing is set in stone but for now it's going to be bi-weekly so meaning two episodes every month and bovine did bring up um you know that he he found out about twitch and whatnot from listening to my other podcasts algen gamers which i'm still a part of however um you know sometimes you want to go off and do little side projects and it we'll just say you know i'm not going to hinge on this too long but sometimes it's just a lot easier to kind of like pair up with one person and be like hey can you record tonight no okay can you record tonight yes sure let's do it whereas when you have a podcast where it's a bunch of people that have very busy lives and you know have a lot going on it can be quite difficult to get together and record a podcast so all gin gamers is my other podcast that i've been doing for many many years uh and I am still a part of it. Just want to make sure that is known. Algen Gamers is not going anywhere. It still exists. We're still all friends. It's just that, you know, sometimes you want to pursue little side projects. And this is one of them. So that's, those are Pete's reasons. My reason, I just get time to actually pick Pete's brains about games that I need to buy. So that's what this is for exactly. me. <laughs> yes. So, yes. Thanks to all the Algen Gamers listeners. And uh, we're going to get into the first topic podcasts and we're going to talk about our favorite consoles to collect for currently hello everybody sorry for the interruption in the show but this is a post-production apology where i just wanted to say that unfortunately during the recording of our first episode this was our first time using discord to record such a thing and there were voice settings that we were not aware of and as a result our voices were cutting out mid-sentence at the beginning of sentences and there's really nothing that we can do about that now. Um, we didn't want to scrap the entire episode because we thought it was a really great episode. So we have to present it to you, unfortunately, in the somewhat uh, slight audio mishap version of uh, the recording. Meaning that I have decided to leave in a lot of those weird pauses and audio cutouts. Because if I were to edit them all out, the sentences wouldn't make sense. And at least this way, when you do hear a little bit of an awkward pause, which... Uh, you know, actually in the natural recording of this show, we had none of those, so it's kind of funny and ironic. Uh, at least you know what's happening. So this will not happen in episode two. Please don't let it ruin your enjoyment of this episode, and we deeply apologize. And I'll let you get back to listening to the show. With the, the prices of retro going up, you know, everything is going up, up, up. It's a big topic in the retro community where everything is just so expensive. It doesn't matter what console you pick. 
with some exceptions, and we're going to get into that. Everything is so pricey, especially if you're going for a complete inbox. So what are we buying in 2017? What are we focusing on, focusing on and why is that? So bovine, mostly focusing on right now in terms of consoles that you know aren't going to break the bank too much, or maybe not even so much money, but what are consoles that you're really enjoying collecting for at the moment? Yeah, I mean, for me, Pete, it's really odd because, like I said, I mean, I've talked about this in the past, but for, for me, um, like my retro game collecting history, it's like I remember growing up collecting all the games and consoles and hanging on to as many of them as I could. But, you know, over the years, I obviously traded games in, traded systems in to upgrade to newer systems. So for me, there was a huge there was a huge lull in my game retro collecting. So, you know, I didn't really start collecting for retro games again until about two years ago and it was there was a trigger point that got me to dive back into retro and it was funny because i went and examined kind of like the remnants of my retro game collection and what what was still hanging around and it was kind of a sad state of affairs i went into my storage i pulled out all my systems and games and i remember posting a picture on reddit on reddit's game collecting subreddit where i said hey here's here's everything i have left from my childhood and it was cool to look through and see what i had but i was just thinking about how many things i had for i'd forgotten about and lost and traded in so really for me i mean i started recollecting uh, all the games from my childhood two years ago so it's kind of odd because you know you were talking you were bringing up price and for me price is kind of strangely relative because since I only started two years ago. I mean, retro game prices had already been on the rise for quite a bit. So I was never able to collect for a lot of these retro games during the heydays of, you know, the cheap prices that everyone talks about from the heydays of retro game collecting. So for me, it's odd and only for collecting for two years. So like for now, when when I talk about retro game prices or what I pay or what I think is fair, it's going to be a little off from what most people may be familiar with. So, you know, for you guys out there, try to give me a little bit of a break here. Then know that my relative scale for game prices starts around 2015. But, I mean, to answer your question, that's, Pete, go ahead. That's, that's very interesting, too, because for me, it's more difficult to collect these days because I do compare to the old prices. <laughs> like, I think, oh, my God, how can I pay that price for, you know, X game when I know that just... You know, three or four years ago, I could have gotten it for like seventy-five percent cheaper. Yeah, and I don't you know, look at that your price. Case, well, that's like a deal for me. <laughs> you don't have any of that to compare it to. Yeah, <laughs> unless you go on PriceCharting.com and then you can see it broken down in a in a, a chart. But do you use that website, by the way, PriceCharting? I, I mean, I do use it as a rough reference. I mean, cause the the thing about the price charting site is that it's very quick, accessible, and easy. You don't have to do an insane amount of research to kind of give you a starting point, and that's kind of what I use it for. And it was funny. I was watching one of your your old YouTube videos talking about like, your eBay game uh, collecting or eBay game hunting videos, which were obviously really popular. But I, I took a lot of that data to heart because I started comparing against the prices I saw that I was using on price charting. And in general, they seem to be pretty okay. But there are some very specific instances where price charting just has really bad data. Like maybe if a game, one game has sold over the past year and you really shouldn't be using that data, then you have to jump to eBay. But I mean, I do use it as a starting point, but now I kind of follow up by doing the sold price searches on eBay to kind of get a decent idea on the going rate. But you have to be very careful too with eBay these days because sellers try and like artificially inflate the prices of games um so for example like if there's a game where say it's an import usually this happens with imports but they will buy up 
all the games that are pretty much on eBay and they'll buy up whatever copies they can in Japan and then they will list them for prices that are far beyond what that game should be going for. Um, there's a game on the Game Boy Color called Samurai Kid mm-hmm. that I've wanted for a very long time. And in the past, the game complete used to go for like maybe $25, $40. All those copies have disappeared and the only copies that are ever available on eBay now are about $130 or more. And none of them ever sell. It's just a byproduct of the sellers pretty much trying to inflate the price of the game. Yeah, I mean, there's two, th- there's two things bad about that, right? Because the eBay price history of things, it only goes back a set amount of time. So if someone were to try to artificially inflate that, they just need to cover that time period, right? Yep. And the thing is, with very obscure games, you're not going to find Samurai Kid on PriceJourney.com. The more obscure you go, especially with imports, that stuff is just not cataloged on that website. So the only true way you'd really know what those games are going for is if you like delve deep into maybe the history of selling prices on Yahoo Japan auctions, Mm. which is pretty much the Japanese equivalent of eBay. Japan doesn't really use eBay. They use Yahoo Japan auctions. But the problem with that site is now that has pretty much become the matching point of ebay because a lot more people from the u.s or other countries are now buying directly from that site whereas in the past it was kind of relatively unknown and underground and i used to buy stuff from there mostly collectibles now that it's become better known that you can import directly and buy directly from yahoo japan auctions the prices on there pretty much meet if not in some cases exceed prices that ebay you're giving away the trade secrets Pete. so now people are going to be running off and yahoo, yahoo auctions will now be ebay right <laughs> The prices on there now are pretty much eBay prices. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, so. I was, was going to ask you, where do you go beyond those resources? I mean, obviously, for games that are that obscure or unique, you're not going to run into that too much. Like, you know, for regular game pricing, people can pretty much rely on price charting plus eBay sold and give you a good rough idea. But, I mean, for you and for, for anyone that goes out there looking for the really obscure stuff, I mean, once you run out of those resources, like, where can you go to get a rec- you know a decent you really check on price? You really can't. The only thing you'd have to rely on is um, just your gut. Like, you got to look <laughs> at how obscure the game is. Like, you have to you have to see, you know, is it the only game listed? You know, is it a really rare game? And if the price seems fair, you might want to go for it because all it takes is one Japanese seller to catch on like, hey, there's this platformer that's on, you know, the Super Famicom or something. And uh, it's totally playable without knowing Japanese. So let's buy up all the copies and let's just boost the price up and you'll never get it for an affordable price again. Because, (laughs) you know, you go on Yahoo Japan auctions, all the ones that were listed on there are gone because Japanese sellers (laughs) or people living in Japan. Uh, buy them up and then throw them up on eBay. So you might um, get that like feeling of guilt being that first person that sets the bar too high for that Boeing price because you want to be you know you want to get your copy and suddenly you know you ruined it by buying it at that price and setting it there. Exactly. That's why I get mad sometimes when I see <laughs> I sold listings and I see somebody that bought a game for way higher than it should have been because uh. then sellers all mark right. So if there's a game selling for thirty forty dollars and then someone decides to buy a really nice mint copy for like seventy five. <laughs> Sellers just look at 75, they don't look at the condition, and they all start selling it for like asking price 70 plus or more. So it's a dangerous time for it is. Uh, it is. And for, for me, deciding like, what you're because it's about. 2017 and I've only been collecting for two years now, I mean, it's weird for me. I'm not really focusing on any number, any specific consoles. I kind of go in waves. So, like, currently in 2017, since you know my collection is obviously far less than yours, I'm still collecting a little bit for everything. So, I 
so what I normally do is that I'll, you know, every couple of weeks I'll focus in on one console and then I'll get a little tired of the research and the pricing. And I'll jump to a new console and start digging through the games there. So I think I'm still pretty early on where it's exciting for me to jump around all over the place from console to console, picking up games. So I can, you know, look for Lynx games one week, look for Turbo Duo games the next, look for 3DO, Game Boy Color. So I, it's hard for me to focus on specific consoles because they're all pretty much the same to me in terms of you know hey the first time I'm, I'm approaching them with retro game prices availability so it's like kind of like a whole new world for me in every console i pick up right now to collect for what one do you find though that you're having the most fun collecting for at the moment in terms of just like discovering what games are available for that console i think for me it's been a lot i mean lately i'm a huge fan of the uh, the handhelds, right? So I really love the Game Boy, Game Gear, like anything that's a portable device that had a lot of unique games. I mean, to me, all of the portable devices pretty much had their own unique libraries, right? There wasn't anything that cut across. I mean, there were some that were more port-heavy from their, you know, console home version of the system. So in terms of, like, if you're talking about the Game Boy Advance and saying a lot of the games may have been ports from, like, the Super Nintendo. So there's that. But in terms of the handheld consoles, the ones I've really been having a lot of fun with just recently within the last couple of months, and it, it, it's, I'm really focusing in, I was focusing in a lot on Game Boy, Game Boy Color, Game Boy Advance. Like those three to me, I feel bad. And I've talked about this before on my stream because when I was growing up, I used a lot, I used flashcards a lot to be able to get access to play a lot of games. But, you know, the thing about having, you know, access to like a flashcard when you were a kid back then, it was complete neck syndrome it's like you could load you know 100 games at once and you wouldn't spend any time on playing those games individually one time you just wanted to do a scatter shot you know jump from this game jump from this game jump from this game play like the first five minutes so i think now as i do research and collect for those handheld consoles i'm seeing a lot of those games like truly giving it a deep dive look for the first time and i just it's amazing because you know prices are generally pretty low and acceptable especially for me since i mainly collect loose cart but I'm finding so many unique titles for like the Game Boy Advance, like the non-ported titles. And Game Boy Color had so many unique games that didn't exist on any console in any way, shape, or form. It just it's, it shocks me how unique those games are on Game Boy Color, and then the non-exclusive or the exclusive ones for GBA. So those are the ones I'm having the most fun with right now. Yeah, I agree. I, those are but I'm also highly focusing on more so the Game Boy Color stuff because I still feel that Game Boy Color is one of the most untapped consoles when it comes to the potential for finding not just affordable games, but amazing games that haven't really been discussed or shown in uh, you know, a certain capacity either on YouTube or on websites or just for like reviewing think, and I mean why do you think that is with the Game Boy Color? What was it about its place during that time that where people have kind of misplaced that game library? I think it was probably more so that big of a leap from the Game Boy so probably a lot of kids that ended up with a Game Boy Color if they were fortunate enough kind of just like mainstay games like you know the Pokemon Golds and the Pokemon Silvers and the Marios and stuff like that. So you think like there would be kids that had a Game Boy Color but they were actually playing like the Game Boy games like they were playing the backward compatible games or? Not so much that though but you gotta remember like Game Boy Color was kids. Sure you know, it didn't matter what age there were people, no matter their age, they were playing Game Boy Colors, but it was targeted towards kids. So you got to remember yeah. that a kid, you know, their parents would usually buy the games for them and they would use their birthday money or their allowance money to buy a game. So the rate at which they acquired games was so low mm-hmm. that maybe they got a game a month, every month or two. 
And the games they would get would typically be the ones that either their friends are playing or like just the the games that they knew were going to be good, like a Pokemon or a Mario. So the Game Boy Color in the U.S. at least had uh, just under 500 games released, like 430. Which was shocking to me when I heard that number. I could not believe it. Right. So what kid in their right minds would have all those games back then? That's why there's so many undiscovered gems out there. And a lot of them came out late in the, the life of the Game Boy Color. So, you know, we're already transitioning into Game Boy Advance Game and Boy everything Advance. like that. I mean, was there overlap so, between the Game Boy Color and Game Boy Advance or was it just really close to the release of the next one that people kind of fatigued um, on the Game Boy Color because they knew the Game Boy Advance my, was coming soon? was the timelines, but from my memory, when Game Boy Advance was out, there were still new Game Boy Color games being released mm-hmm. during like the first year or so. Yeah, I feel the there Game was a fair amount of overlap. There were games that were released on both the Game Boy Color and Game Boy Advance. Which games those were kind of escaped me mm. right now. Um, oh, here's a good example. Planet of the Apes released on the PlayStation 1, the Game Boy Advance, and the Game Boy Color. Hmm. So right there, that's a that's an overlap. And it's Game the, same game, the same for game for Game Boy Color and Game Boy Advance, right? That overhead adventure style... Uh, not even the Game Boy, the Game Boy Color and the Game Boy Advance version of Planet of the Apes is this weird side-scrolling platformer that I actually have the Game Boy Color version of it, but I haven't played it yet because it looks god awful, <laughs> god awful. <laughs> or some really bad Game Boy Color games, yeah. but sometimes you got to take a risk, right? Like what I do is usually, well, what I did personally for the Game Boy Color collection is I went through every single game in the U.S. library and to some extent pretty much every exclusive European release game as well um, and I went on YouTube for each game and I watched video of each one even if it was a game that I didn't think would be good the only exceptions I made were for stuff like uh, Barbie or something you know, or <laughs> some kind of like pet pet game or some stuff that now, you just don't know talk bad about those pet work. games come on every now and then it's it's fun to go in and stab a bird you know with the wrong medicine like 10 times to figure out what happens <laughs> Maybe. but um, you know, just for the most part, I checked out every single Game Boy Color game. I'd go and watch video, and maybe within the first 10 seconds, I know it's not a good game. It's not a game for me. But mm. that's how I found a lot of the great, really hidden games on the Game Boy Color is you watch a video and you're like, wow, this actually looks like it could be decent. Maybe it's the music. Maybe the music alone kind of like captivates you, and you're like, wow, this music, I might buy this game just for that alone. Because the Game Boy Color does have some great tracks. It's just uh, crazy cool. to me that a lot of the Game Boy Color games themselves, they just seem to run really well. You know what I mean? Like, they, there's no slowdown issues. There's no... They seem to run very optimized for that system. I don't know whether it's Yes, just, that is true. That is true. I mean, you don't have the problems of a Game Boy game with, like, ghosting if stuff is moving too fast. Yeah, um, like, not at all. It's crazy. A lot of the racing games and stuff that are on there, such as Toy Story Racer, is mm. one of the best examples. That is one of the most impressive-looking... <laughs> Game Boy Color, um, where it's sort of using like full motion video as the backdrop and then overlaying the sprites to drive through the courses. Oh, really? I haven't seen that game. Yeah. Then. I gotta take a look at that one. And I was hoping that Looney Tunes Racer on the Game Boy Color would have <laughs> been similar to that, but that's one of the worst games I've ever played. It's pretty much Toy Story <laughs> Racer without the full motion video and just like a bland <laughs> backdrop. It's honestly one of the worst games I've ever played. Yeah, well, um, do you is... have examples? Oh, go ahead. No, okay. I was going to say, I picked up, or I played or streamed the Mickey Mouse uh, Game Boy Color Racing game. I can't remember what it was called. Like, uh, uh, Mickey's Adventure Racing something? There's Mickey's Speedway USA, and then there's Mickey's Adventure something. One yeah. of them is developed by Rare, which is the Mickey's Adventure one, I believe. Yeah, that was the one I was playing, and it's a top-down style racer in the vein of like RC Pro-Am, mm-hmm. but 
my god, like the speed at which that game runs, and then like the animated or just the backgrounds, how well they're drawn. Sure, it sure. just yeah. it just was amazed me how well it ran. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen. Uh, well, I mean, I, I guess I shouldn't say that, but. I get what you're saying. There's there's really no performance problems. It mostly comes down to control issues. With yeah. Game Boy Color. yeah, which is a completely different thing, obviously. And some games blow your mind with the graphics, like Alone in the Dark, A New Nightmare. Uh, visually, one of the most impressive Game Boy Color games. It's um, I'm pretty sure you've played this. I haven't played it yet, where it's got like the pre-rendered backgrounds. Oh, yeah, like Resident Evil-style pre-rendered backgrounds yeah. with uh, full 3D-scaled or at least sprite-scaling uh, characters and... Uh, that that game it, was amazing. Because you go into the, they have these random battles in that game. So you're walking around Resident Evil style, you know, collecting items, solving puzzles. But then you get random battles where the game throws you into this like not quite isometric, but it's like an overhead action sequence where it oh. it gives you an environment that matches wherever you were wandering around. And so if you're wandering around a swamp, you suddenly get this completely different looking overhead two D style background swamp oh. environment. I didn't know it did like, that well. You're fighting like alligators and crabs coming at you, and then when you're done with the random battle, it throws you back into the environment. That, that completely threw me off when it ran into the random battles there. Hmm. I didn't actually know that game did that. It, it's it's funny too because it uses the same the Resident Evil game on Game Boy Color. Mm-hmm. Now, not not Resident Evil Gaiden. Uh, we're talking about the unreleased Resident Evil game, which I streamed last year. <laughs> the one year you streamed with the five-second loop. <laughs> yeah, so music. it's an unfinished game, uh, a f- complete recreation of Resident Evil 1, room for room. Like, yeah. it's pretty much the exact game that you remember from... Uh, but done for the Game Boy Color, visually, one of the most impressive things I've seen. Same engine as Alone in the Dark, um, but it was unfinished, so unfortunately... <laughs> When I was streaming it, my viewers had to listen to this music loop that was probably about a 10 to 12 second music loop <sighs> over and over for about God, four hours. That 10 second loop was I just still know it. I everyone. still remember that song. <laughs> I try not to every now but and then, and someone will bring it up, and then it pops into my head again to infest and, you know, give me headaches for like two you days. You can download, <laughs> I'm sure you can come across, if you guys really needed to, uh, a reproduction <laughs> of this game or play it in other means, but you should because it shows you the untapped potential of what could have been yeah. uh, one of the most impressive Game Boy Color games out there, especially if you're a Resident Evil fan. It is playable. I actually made it pretty damn far in. There are no bosses. There are only zombies. Some of them are a little glitched out, um, but they have like placeholders for the bosses. You think there was a way to actually get through that probably. version all the way through? Them? I thought you were stuck on some game-breaking glitch, or maybe you just got caught in a room oh, with the wrong I item. just got stuck at some point later in the yeah. game, and I was just like, you know what? I think everybody's had enough of this music. I think we've got the <laughs> idea. This game looks great. It runs amazing. Um we'll move on to the next game but yeah, it was to check out the alone in the dark because if you if you like the way that one played that was a much i would think even a more superior version over the resident evil game which was an amazing you know feat in itself but also with the game boy i mean we don't want to hinge on what well, we should do an entire episode in the future on <laughs> but uh, it's also very affordable like bovine collects cart only i do complete in box because i just you know i, I love my cardboard and paper i, I can't get enough hey of i love my and cardboard luckily, and paper too pete i just i can't pay that delta in price between a console and the instructions in cart you know <laughs> but that's why i like the game boy color a lot because even with the cardboard and paper it's very affordable uh, most complete games will cost you around 20 or under in the realm of 10 to 20 mm-hmm. the only exceptions are obviously the games that are uh, you know either got the atlas name on them or they're <laughs> sort of like a very well-known like the shantays and stuff like that obviously or the first party nintendo stuff and... yeah any first party nintendo stuff but a lot of the cheaper under the radar stuff is very <clears throat> very affordable 
portable. Um, the same can be said for the most part for the Game Boy Advance. Uh, a little less so, but there's a lot of really cheap, complete games on there. Um, the original Game Boy, that's another monster, though. <laughs> Cart only that. It's the first console to ever <laughs> convert me to wanting to buy cart only. See, Anybody that knows it, me knows that. You had to do it sometime, that's. Pete. <laughs> because I was, I was trying to collect for the original Game Boy, and every game that I wanted to buy, no Game Boy, if you're looking with cart, box, and manual, Unreal. The cart could be a fifteen dollar cart, but suddenly yeah. it comes with the box and manual. Three hundred dollars. <laughs> I mean, it was Super no Nintendo joke. style pricing between loose cart and complete and box for Game Boy is ridiculous. I mean, it's just too much to stomach, and I'm just like, you know, there comes the point where you just need to move on past the cart, uh, the boxes and manuals. And the cool thing about Game Boy carts is they're very stackable. You know, they still look kind of cool if you stack them up, and that's very well. I've assuming you have the case, right? The little snap I've, case. <laughs> And just stacking them up normally because you're going to learn a lot of quirks about me. The only reason I don't do Game Boy Color complete, I mean, loose bump. <laughs> it has that bump, and you can't stack them. Now, yes, those are the um, those are later release Game Boy Color games. The ones without the bump are the ones that were sort of the earlier Game they Boy look, Color games where they can work in a original yeah, Game Boy the or black Game Boy cartridge Color. ones versus the translucent. Right? Yeah, but the translucent ones translucent ones have that bump so you can't stack them on top of one another and it's just so you gotta make sure you have that plastic snap case for every one of those that's too much work (laughs) but you know i've uh one of the reasons why i wanted to collect card only for that is because i'm very much last year when i was going to conventions i was so envious and jealous of the people that were there like digging through the little bins of game boy games that were all loose and you hear them like clinking and clanking <laughs> around and you, they pull them out and they find this game that's normally worth like 15 bucks 20 dollars, and they get it for three dollars i was like oh my god so I, I convinced myself to finally go cart only so that this year when i go to conventions i'm going to be able to delve into those bins like finding buried treasure you know <laughs> or just pick out anything that i think has a nice cover and get it for a couple of bucks you're gonna be looking like those homeless people digging through garbage for food i'm telling you join the ranks pete that's what i've been doing <laughs> I, th- I think the thing that also kind of helped me is uh, last year at Portland Retro Gaming Expo, I was trying to find a cart-only copy of Doom on the Game Boy Advance mm-hmm. um, because I had I managed to find a box of manual for it there, and I needed the cart. And I was digging through a bin of Game Boy Advance games, and I came across a cart of uh, Tiny Toons, Buster's, Scary Dreams oh. from Treasure, which is now a eighty-plus dollar cartridge. Yep, loose. And at the time, right. yep, loose, just the cart. At the time when I found it, I think they were asking $8 something in that realm. And <sighs> me being me, at the time, the cart was still worth about 40 or 50 I still talked them down to like to five. five bucks. <laughs> yep. Because, you know, every dollar counts. And make, I, Wait I a never minute. Buy you found that at event. last PRG? Yeah, we can, we can get there. <laughs> oh, my but God. That's what helped get me into cart only collecting for Game Boy 2 is because I, I love the thrill of just finding that one rare cart. And I was like, wow, they have no idea what this is worth. Scoop that right up. Um, sorry, but what were you, you going to say? No, I was going to say, you were, wait, if that was there, if you found that copy of uh, Buster's game for Game I was there at Portland Retro Game Expo. Where the hell were you when you found that cartridge? It was actually towards, I think it was at the last day of the expo. So it survived all no three way. days. No way, it survived three um, days of rifling no one, around. Ugh thing right because it's a bin of cart only so you got to think of it this way all a lot of people that go to conventions like that you have two different groups of people you have mm-hmm. the hardcore collectors that only go for complete in box and then you have the casual collectors that you know don't care not so not calling hey. people that we go cart only <laughs> casual but you know what i mean like the people yeah, that yeah. 
maybe you're not really into collecting yet and they're there just to kind of like check out the retro games mm-hmm. so they're like oh i got a game boy advance let's see what's in here a lot of the collectors don't really go for card only so or the ones that know the true value of some of these games or maybe this game is really just that under the radar but it survived all three ga- days of portland um i should have dug more carefully yeah, but it's not the kind of game that you would expect to be expensive. Um, so, you know, it's a Tiny Toons game. Who would expect that to be a yeah, 50 And I guess that one has ramped up pretty quickly over the last year. So maybe, like you were saying, even at that time, it wasn't even... The exposure to that at game that was so time, low, people didn't right. realize it. At that time, it was still like a $40 cart if it showed up, because they very rarely were even on eBay. Mm-hmm. Uh, now it's like almost 100 plus. Yeah, for it's just the too much now. Because it's developed by Treasure, and it's actually a very good game. It's a side-scrolling beat-em-up game. Um, I've streamed it before for a bit. I want to get back to it because it's an absolutely fantastic game. I, I actually managed to find a complete copy on eBay last year for a very good price. I can't recall what it was, but it was under $100. I snatched that right up because I went on price charting and only one complete copy had sold in like the past two years or so. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, yep, let's buy that. Wait, so you because have two copies of that game? <laughs> yes. yes you damn I bastard. <laughs> Uh, where my extra cartridge is, I'm not completely sure. It's right here somewhere, but I got two. Um, you let me know when you find that loose one that you want to get rid of. <laughs> I will. Uh, but I mean, going back to it, going back focus. to it though for 2017 though. I mean, what else are you like for you? I always think it's strange because you know you've been collecting for so long and you held on to everything and you know obviously you've you've fleshed you've thinned out your collection and, and recollected. There's some things people obviously obviously out there already know. But like for you, is it really tough to even look for new things to collect for? Or do you feel that, you know, it's not like, I mean, for as many games as you have and what you have, but I mean, you do still find blocks of games that you feel you can discover new games and research and find new things even after all this time? Um, certain systems. Um, like the, the PlayStation 1, for example, is probably the the latest and greatest well not so much the latest but it's i'm always finding myself discovering new games and exciting games on the playstation one that are thankfully very cheap just because there's so many the games sheer on size console. right at the library yeah, like a thousand plus games so you're 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 thing you know you you just come across a cool looking cover or a cool looking name and you're like oh let's find out more about this game and you check out a video and maybe it doesn't look like it's the greatest but it's like oh for a few bucks sure i'll try this out the PlayStation is probably one of my favorite consoles to collect for right now just because of how exciting it can be to discover games that you're like, wow, I had no idea this existed. Yeah, not um, even you know, all the imports, right? Imports is another monster. Yeah, <laughs> imports is pretty exciting too, even though more and more um, between the Saturn and the PlayStation 1, like I'm pretty, pretty confident that I know most of the games that are worth having now. Um, but those are always fun to look through because, you know, sometimes you just got to take that weird looking Japanese name of a game and try and look it up. And sometimes you don't find footage and then you got to sometimes take a risk and buy it like (laughs) egg. I bought a game called egg on the PlayStation one and how I find a lot of my really, really obscure games. People, I always wonder how, how do I find all these weird games that no one's ever heard of before? Um, Usually what I do is I go on eBay search results and I just try and find something that has a name that, you know, isn't going to be like a dating simulator or something or a cover <laughs> that just we through the virtu- the novels yeah. and the dating sims and the rpgs of like feudal japan <laughs> i come across this game on playstation one called egg just simply egg egg and it just has a cover it's a black cover with an, a white egg on it copy on ebay no other ones 
that I remember searching for sold. There's no YouTube video, and believe me, I tried searching. No video of this game online. Screenshots, pretty much non-existent. There was just a little bit of a discussion about the game on a forum from many, many years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so I took a shot, I bought it, streamed it, and it was a hit. Like People love this game. You pretty much just play as an egg that you roll around and you try and cover territory. So think of it like Splatoon. You know how in Splatoon you take your color and you're trying to like color the ground just as the best analogy that I can kind of come up with where you're trying to color the ground um, to take over territories. Well, that's what this is. It's a top-down isometric view where you roll your egg arounds and... Um, like say you uh, say you make a circle, you encompass a circle. Like you you roll around with your egg and you make a, a circle. The beginning will, I mean, the middle will fill in with your color, and mm-hmm. then um, you can roll in that area a little more to level up your city. So you're like, it's this weird four I mean, player like battle mode with AI and these eggs rolling around and you're throwing down destructive powers. Like, but how was the combat? The I mean, so you had abilities to fight other yes, yeah. like enemies. It's a little hard to figure out, obviously, because it's all in Japanese. But there are abilities where you can like flood your opponent's cities. You can cast like a volcano that erupts, and it destroys like what they've worked on. Um, once I got the hang of the game, it was actually a win. But it was just like finding this game that pretty much is non-existent online when it comes to information about the game and streaming it for a group of like 100 plus people and everybody's just flipping out because it's this amazing game that no one really even knew existed. Uh, some budget game that came out of Japan never got ported anywhere and loving the music I remember the music and it was like just this very somber kind of yeah I remember I, you, like, paid, you played that game early on in that stream and yeah. I wasn't there for that so I missed a lot of that egg mania but from what I saw on the, like, the oh mod, I'll be streaming it, it again crazy. I plan on doing a stream where I'm just going to highlight like the best of my PS1 imports so all the amazing games that I love for the Japanese PlayStation 1 like I just to like maybe a top 10 for the fun of it to kind of make it fun for people and just count them down in order of like my my top 10 favorite PlayStation 1 games so there's a little I mean it scares me to think about you know we were talking about the the domestic PlayStation library how it's like a thousand plus games and how many hidden gems that we're finding even to this day like with all the time you spend collecting all the research and you're still finding new games like I think about the import library and like how many of those are out there that are worth I just it hurts my brain to think about it Mm -hmm. yeah the imports um, it can be dangerous though because of shipping costs and you know just the general cost of those games is going up and up but and it's also dangerous too because you do take a risk sometimes you buy a game that you think looks like it could be playable and then you realize that oh shoot they're asking me a question that is in japanese and i need to know the answer in japanese and i don't know how to answer and there's no guide out there there's no youtube video to watch because it's you know no one has any information on it exactly so Yes, it's uh, and I did the same thing for the Wii not that long ago, several months back. I just said, you know what, we're going to go through or try and attempt as much as I can to go through the entire library of Wii games, go through game by game. That isn't like a pet's babies kind of, you know, ordeal, like just Barbie, Hannah Montana. (laughs) And uh, I remember finding quite a bit of decent games through that. So that's what you got to do. If you're really looking to collect for a certain console, just sit down. Maybe it'll take you a couple of evenings, maybe a month, maybe every night go through like I don't know, two dozen games and watch a YouTube video or just find out as much information as you can on every single game. Just go in order uh, alphabetically and you'll find some amazing stuff. Uh, that's so much work. I'll just wait till you do oh, a game, is. eBay yeah, game is. hunting uh, stream and I'll just write down the games from there. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of work, but it's a lot of fun. So <laughs> next, I think what we were going to do is getting to... Um, so I'm going to start. 
I've been playing a lot of Sonic R because I'm <laughs> speedrunning it now, by the way, in case you didn't know. And if you don't catch up with my streams and maybe you're listening to this podcast uh, for the first time since my last podcast on something. Uh, yeah, I speedrun games now. Very select few games, which I'll get to the other one next. But, well, I should just say I'm speedrunning Sonic R and Bubsy 3D. Right? Of course, right? What <laughs> games would Pete Door stream other than freaking Bubsy Yeah, if you guys are expecting Ninja Gaiden or Mega Man, you're not going to see that shit here. <laughs> no, it, it, it pretty much just comes down to what games I have fun speedrunning. I'm not speedrunning them to be cool and be like, oh, I'm speedrunning bad games. Because honestly, I don't think these games are that bad and I actually think they're more fun speedrunning them than playing them normally I'm going to be completely honest um, but Sonic R has been my latest undertaking where I'm playing the Sega Saturn version and uh, I've been playing the hell out of that game I actually played the game and streamed it yesterday for 10 hours straight my <laughs> thumb is hating me for it now actually my thumb no joke is in like pretty bad pain it, it may actually determine my future of speedrunning Sonic R because what happens is I have to hold the gas button down Nonstop. You cannot ever let go of the gas. Unlike other racing games where you kind of like throttle it, you don't throttle it in Sonic R. You're holding down and pressing down the gas button. There, there's no slowing down to take a turn better or anything like that. Just full throttle. Throttle. So after hours and hours and hours every night, you know, holding down, pressing my thumb down, it's creating strain on my like knuckle area. And uh, yeah, we'll see how that goes. Maybe I can find some kind of home remedy to I was going to say you got to you have to institute the IRL hack right you got to put the rubber band or a piece of gum to hold down that button no unfortunately not but anyway Sonic R I've been speedrunning that and that means pretty much just completing the game as fast as I can that means every millisecond matters the world record is 10 minutes 30 seconds and I have my personal best down to 10 minutes 57 seconds which if you think about it there's five tracks uh, that means that I'm approximately a second and a half behind on each lap but I have the potential to perform only 11 seconds from the world record, which means that uh, I'm pretty happy with that, considering I've only been speedrunning the game for not even a week. Uh, great game, though. I love Sonic R. This, the music, come on now. That's half the game right <laughs> the there. The music people is like, oh. there. Come on. <laughs> people were like, turn off the lyric. One guy was like, turn off the lyrics. I'm like, are you serious? I might as well not even play this game. <laughs> I was practicing in the last level where the song Diamond in the Sky plays. And people had to endure listening to that song for not even kidding, like six or seven hours. And it's a common theme now in my Twitch chat where people are just saying how they've been singing these songs in the shower or walking down the street. You know, they cannot get the songs out of their heads. Well, to be fair, they are very damn good songs, right? So No, they're very good. Yeah, they're they're the if you've never heard them before, they're 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 these very sort of like S sort of like Euro dance, very happy, upbeat songs that are very positive and uplifting. They actually helped me speed run that game because one of the songs is talking about how you should never give up on your dreams and, you know, about <laughs> feeling sunshine and all this stuff. I mean, it's just so motivational. You know? I mean, the music is very quintessential 90s Sega in a way, if you think about it, right? Like, there was a lot of their games that had that really energetic, bouncy, positive kind of soundtrack going through them. Like, you think about the Daytona games <laughs> and the music there. It's so out of place in Sonic R, though. Like, <laughs> let's, not, let's not kid ourselves. It's completely out of place, but somehow yeah. it works. Yeah, it belongs in, like, the backdrop of a karaoke video more than anything, I think. <laughs> Sonic R, though, the thing that you'll first notice about it is that the controls are completely like you're running on ice um, you have almost no control it feels like over your characters when you first start playing uh, the controls are by far the hardest thing to overcome which is why normally when you find a video of that on YouTube 
Um, you might find my review. I did a review of that like eight years ago. It's true. Uh, where you'll see more than the first level because most people never get past the first level because they just can't get over the controls. But if you can overcome that, I think it's a very deeply satisfying game. And that's why speedrunning it is so much fun because performing Sonic R at the highest level for all stages without making any mistakes is a very, very big task to overcome because it's just that difficult. Yeah, I, mean, uh, and I, I have never to play that the, game growing up and when i saw you going through the speed running i had to pop it and you know i only have the i don't have the sega saturn version i have the gamecube version of it that's on the sonic gems collection and when i went through to try out just the first couple of races like i was actually surprised at the amount of technique that is required or available to be used in that game so it's, it makes it a decent you know full technique racing game as well and in a way that's what i love about sonic r is how it feels it doesn't even feel like a racing game to me it feels like i'm just running really fast in a platformer because the controls actually kind of feel like you're playing a really broken you're just running really fast because you can go in total reverse you run around you jump uh you drift uh you glide depending on the character that you use so it's a very very unique (laughs) feeling racing game that if you have the sonic gem collection and if you don't I would implore you to give it a try because it's a very great collection. You get Sonic the Fighters. It's the only home console port of that outside of Xbox Live Arcade. Uh, for like, it's like 20 bucks. For Don't forget game, all the great so. Game Gear ports on there too. Those two. Yeah. yeah. But you get Sonic R. It's a pretty damn good part because the, uh, the Saturn version has a lot of popping. It has a lot of, um, not a lot, but it has some slowdown. Um, the main reason why I play it is because it's more nostalgic to me. It's the version I grew up with. And in the GameCube version, when you speedrun it, you have to use the snow levels, which turns all the levels into sort of this generic looking wintry theme. Whereas the Saturn version is so bright and cheery and colorful because you get to play in the, the normal levels. Um, but it's too bad they don't have the original port version of the Saturn on that gems collection. It's got, it's got it's that remade version. So What about you? I guess it has to do with the from the Saturn and for whatever reason I don't know the technicality behind it but uh, it's never easy to port directly from a Saturn from yeah. what I understand so that has to be why so what about you Bovine what's the game that you've been playing well I mean one that I've actually really glommed onto. so for me in most of my streams I really want to I want to try new games that I do very little research on or have very little information on definitely blind in a lot of cases so what happens is that you know we end up in my stream, I always end up playing games that we run the gamut from you know really really bad licensed movie crap to pretty decent unknown obscure games and everything in between. But one of the one of the things that happens is that I usually play a game and I'll probably won't finish it. So it's a big thing in my stream to not finish games because it will take me way too long to go through them. But the other thing that happens is that I'll play through games and I'll just he actually never has get a command in his chat by the way <laughs> that will list how many what game specifically he's beat. So that'll tell you something. Does yeah, Moody still keep up with that, list. by the way? Is it a pretty big list now? No, no. There's like less than 10 on there right now. So. Okay. But um, the funny thing is that I, one of the games I was playing recently was uh, D2 on the Dreamcast, which is technically supposed to be, I guess, a sequel to the D, the first D game that I played on the PlayStation, which I loved. And it's the, yeah. it's the Kenji Which Eno I streamed. Yeah, I streamed D, the original, for the 3DO last October, and I loved that game. Absolutely loved it. It was my first time playing through it. So yeah, how would you? How would you? So go ahead. How does D two compare to the first D? Does it really have any similarity without being too spoiler? (laughs) Okay, so that's the thing. I for myself, I would have just 
been totally fine with a, a, the same type of game in a different environment and different storyline because I like I mean I love that game when I played it on my PlayStation for the first time like back in 1995 or 6 because it was one of the launch very close to the launch games for PlayStation but this version when I popped it in it is completely uh, how do I say it? there's a bunch of different game mechanics that happen in that game so you do have sequences that are very similar to the first D where they're they're kind of like locked plane movement games where you basically just move point to point to do like you know, item pickup and solve puzzles. But that's only like 20% of the game. The other 80% is mixed and interspersed within like third person behind the shoulder view, first person shooting. Like it just jumps around from different game modes. And it took me a while to figure out like how many there were because as I was playing through the first disc, it kept giving me a new game mode. I'm like, well, where? how many different ways is this game really going to go? It was shocking to me that it was not just like a straight sequel. And 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 from what I hear, the only thing it has in common with the first game is just that the character of D and D2, you know, her name is Laura. But I don't know if it's the same lore that exists in the universe of these stories, or from what I've heard and what people were saying in stream, it's just a character model that was owned by Kenji Ino, and they just happened to use that character in all of their games, despite having no connection. So it's almost like an actress that they use in all their digital games. See, I hate to hold Bova and back too much, but that's one of the games that I'm looking to play for this October, which was uh, graciously donated to me by John Trek Gamer. So thank mm. you, John Trek, if you're listening. He uh, gifted me that game so I can play it for this October. And I'm like Bovine, where I like to go into games completely blind because I think it's so much more fun to kind of share that experience where you don't know what to expect. You know, mm. that's why I love these days avoiding any gameplay or trailers or anything like that for new games because i want to go into those games not knowing what to expect and i'm the same way with retro games so if there's a retro game that i've avoided for all these years and i can pretty much say that i'm going to be completely blind playing it i want to keep it that way you know i I love playing an old game as though i'm playing it on release date when it first came out yeah i I, i'm sorry i mean i probably spoiled some of that for you for no no it's cool i had had somewhat of an idea that yeah, you've probably done a little bit of research and saw that it, it moved him. But it just to me, it, it was shocking to me that it was jumping around so much. So it's a great game. I, I, I followed up a, like a weekend stream with a Monday stream to continue the adventures of lore in that game because it just goes all over the place. But in terms of the atmosphere, the storyline that was being built, the gameplay itself, I mean, there's some issues with the gameplay, but the story was pretty well done. And I um, mean, it's a four disc game, I think. So I think I just started disc two, but it's it's an amazing game and definitely worthy of, especially if you're a sequel to the first game, to check that one out. Very cool. So I played a game on the Wii just the other night called Flips Twisted World. It's a it's a game that I got on eBay for like seven bucks ship. So I'm like, how can I go wrong? It's a 3D platformer exclusive to the Wii, and I'm like, all right, let's give this a try. So. Oh, what such mixed feelings about this game. So first of all, the developers worked on it. Sorry, I don't know their name offhand. Wait, I got the game right here in front of me. Let me see. Uh, published by Majesco, developed by Frozen North. So apparently Frozen North, Frozen North. developed this game for four years. Right? Imagine putting your passion four and your time into this game? game for four years or more. And the game comes out in bombs. The reviews were like, it had a 50% or under on Metacritic. Um, it just got slams and obviously didn't sell well because of it I don't know if they ever came out with any other games after that but I kind of went into this game knowing that it wasn't going to be the best but at the same time you've got to think like man thing to it if developers worked on it for four whole years and it does 
the mechanic of this game is that you can flip the world as you know told by the name of the game flips twisted world so think of it the best way i can describe it is thinking of think of it as a super mario galaxy type game but except for the planetary sort of like orbit gimmick of mario galaxy and mm-hmm. i hate to call it a gimmick but it's the only word that comes to mind instead of the orbiting stuff you flip the world and you can do that by either using the motion controls or the joystick which i kind of wish i oh God. had known about several hours earlier <laughs> you were using the motion controls early on i was doing the motion and it wasn't working all that great and then eventually i learned you can just flip it with the joystick um, but what you do is you rotate the levels and it does create such intricate level designs and that is exactly why this game took four years to develop because Man, those are some comp- complex levels. Like they are gigantic. It's very. It was kind of mind blowing when you'd you'd walk out and you'd enter a level and you'd see this wide, huge expanse of the level, not in front of you, mm-hmm. like not like laid out on a flat plane, but rather like twisted and bent up, box in a way where it's going vertically. Like you see the plane of the level you're going to be walking on, sort of like plastered in front of you, if that makes sense, as though you had like an L block, right? Mm-hmm. like two sheets of paper making an L. Think of it like that, where, you know, in order to reach that part of the level that you see sort of directly in front of you, you have to flip the world around and whatnot. And they're very large in scale. And it, where there were many times where I would be like, okay, how do I advance here? And I really had to examine the levels, not handhold at all. It's not like, oh, here's an arrow. You got to flip this way. Or, oh, here's a glowing edge here. You should probably flip here to jump here. No, I got stuck many times where I had to really examine every little part of the level. And maybe I advanced through some of these levels completely by luck in that it was like, not in the intended way. <laughs> not in the intended way. But that's kind of cool in a way. I kind of appreciate games where they're not that handholdy. They're not too difficult where you're completely stumped and you just got to move on to another game. Uh, it was just the right level of challenge. And for a game that was targeted towards kids, I can't imagine kids making it that far in this game with some of these freaking, I don't want to call them puzzles, but I'd say world exploration. Hmm. Um, but that's where the good things about this game stop. Um, <laughs> everything else, the controls and the jumping was just abysmal. I mean, and for game, so was the flip a one eighty degree flip, or could you rotate along a three like the the three sixty axis and kind of have to angle it in certain ways to get through these platforms? It was pop- controlled puzzles. in a very rigid way, so that you can only flip like one eighty at a time. So you'd be oh. like, okay, you can either flip forward, backwards, left or right, but it only rotates. Think of it like a box, right? If you're taking a box, yeah. you can't rotate it on a degree that would sort of make it. Um, like sit at 45 like kind or something. Of angle. Right. Yeah. It's only like very rigid rotation. So there, there was limitations. Uh, that would have been way too cool. Like yeah. this would have made it sounds kind of cool. But I mean, yeah, if you had a game where you could design very complex, like 3d platform puzzles that you had to carefully rotate and then give you an angle that you can run on, like that sounds like it'd be a damn good game. Yes. Yeah. And it's really a shame too, because the graphics I would, I would honestly put this up there with one of the best looking Wii games I've ever seen. Maybe yeah. only behind Mario Galaxy, Mario Galaxy and wow. Xenoblade and last story and stuff like that. It's a, it's a looker. Like some of the levels are incredibly cool to look at. Um, like for example, you're in a cathedral and the sun rays are shining through the stained glass windows and you can see the dust particles. And I'm like, wow, what? for a game like this, like the level of detail is way beyond what I was ever expecting. So in the end, it's a very sloppy platformer that unfortunately the four years in development were probably only placed in the visuals and the world level layout and everything else when it comes to the controls and the story and pretty much everything else was very sloppily and 
hastily handled. Um, Probably high hopes, though, for an idea of a game that started out on a really big high, but then as development, you know, slogged on for four years, they probably just had to cut corners, you know, get it, get it complete. Ran out of the budget. They just had to get it out the door, and it's a shame. You know, it's kind of sad that uh, I don't even know if the game sold enough to be worth it for the developers. I might have to look into that. (laughs) Yeah, I never Um, saw or heard of that game until I saw it on your on your on your VOD. I was like, what is this game that you played? I I didn't watch that one, so I knew of it all these years, but I never bought it because of the reviews back then. Because obviously the game was full price, and now that I can get it for seven bucks, why not? Well, there you guys go. Grab there. that game before the Pete Door effect makes it go to like twenty or twenty-five. Oh, I, I doubt it won't. But, <laughs> uh, I, I doubt it will. But what about you? Any other interesting games? Uh, so yeah, one of the other things I was really interested in uh, checking out these days, I've been looking a lot into the Super Nintendo Repro cards. So a lot of these cards are obviously uh, RPGs, text-heavy games that were only released in you know other re- or released in Japan and were never given a domestic U.S. release. So it's interesting to kind of do some research and dive into those games. So one of the games I was looking through and decided to pick up was this game called Alkahest for the Super Nintendo, and it was a game made by square it was published by square enix i can't remember who was made by i don't think i think it was just published by them but the game i did some research on it and it kind of looked like an overhead act razor style game um so where the perspective was kind of top down but in terms of the weapons and the and that combat it looked like act racer and then there were also some magic items and some uh, some partners that tag along with you so it looked like one of those games i want to check out so I grabbed it in threw it on stream and as we were going through it i mean it was really I was expecting maybe a little bit more RPG style in the action RPG vein, but it was definitely more action oriented. So you could go through, you could level up a little bit, but in general, what you're doing is going through these overhead areas, collecting items that would help you, you know, get past the earlier parts of the weapon or levels to be able to get past to the later uh, later areas. So most of the game revolved around just running around hack and slash, solving some very you know small. Small scale puzzles, picking up items and going back. But you could also pick up, you know, partners that would give you abilities and help you defeat the enemies and handle. But so it wasn't, it wasn't like a super, like. Did you have direct thing. control over these allies, or were they all just controlled by the AI? No, they were pretty much just controlled by the AI. They basically tagged along, and you can basically call their um, their actions oh, when see. you needed it. So it was more like a tag in partner. So they didn't actually have direct control over them. But the variety of the uh, the partners you got, like the abilities you got, which I thought was interesting because it kind of, it basically gave you magic attacks for each of the people that you picked up. So you would only have them for certain parts of the game. And I'm wondering if as you move forward, do they come back, and do you suddenly have access to like multiple ones at once? So I didn't get that far to know if I could swap between them because. Because the, in the menus, it looks like there's slots for all of them. And at some point, up to this point, I've only been able to carry like one at a time. And then they kind of leave and come back. And I don't know if they get back to you at some point later. But it has the potential for doing that. And I think if you have access to all of them, it, it, it would open up a lot of the gameplay and maybe variety in the level. So this is a decent little game, though. Were there any other uh, reproduction Super Nintendo games that you've had your eye on? Or you kind of just like settled on one and decided to go with that? And you know? No, I picked up about 12 all at once. And it was, I've been kind oh, wow. of um, adding in uh, a bunch of game suggestions from people in streams. So there's a lot of people who recommended a number of games that I decided to pick up all at once. So like um, there was a lot of RPGs in there like Bob Lagoon and um, what was it? The Probably... Uh, Stuff like uh, Treasure of the Rudras, yeah, Treasure so Hunter G. One. Yeah, I've got a handful of them too. There, there are some great games that never made it over here. Really, um, unfortunately, it's 
it's a little pricey still to get reproductions. I mean, you're paying for people's time to make them. I just mm-hmm. wish they were a little bit more affordable for the carts only, especially if you go complete in box. That stuff is real dangerous. Uh, I yeah, used to I mean, buy from Time Walk Games a little mm-hmm. bit, and um, they were so expensive, but their their quality was so high. How much would you put pay a lot of work for those? I mean, like 50, 60 bucks? Oh, they were um, closer to like 70, 80 Oof, per game. That's pretty complete. high. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny because like on Etsy, I've been noticing that's where I, I found a couple of resellers there that I'm buying my repo cards from, and I'm getting basic all of them for an average of about twelve to fifteen dollars each, which is an I think a pretty awesome price. And the quality of the repro fifteen dollars for a Super Nintendo repro? Oh yeah, absolutely. You got to check it out, just because more affordable I think, than most other places. Yeah, I mean, there's so many people on Etsy that just have the ability to you know, burn the ROMs and buy the shells and get the artwork done now. That there's a mm-hmm. huge price competitive thing going on on etsy right now between these resellers of the repo cards you should really drop on by and take a look just to see like kind of where the pricing is because i was shocked that i was getting them all under 20 for all of these games yeah. i used to have to pay like 25 30 for a cart back in the day when it was you know i guess less competitive and mm-hmm. still relatively new for yeah. the collector market so yeah I, I guess there's just easier access to those uh to the hardware to get you know repo cart up and running and you know sold all the way through and they do them at enough volume that i guess they can sell them at those uh lower prices so it's definitely worth a look for anyone who's interested in taking a look at repro snes cards did you have any other games that uh yeah what was the other one the, oh, was, so the <laughs> other interesting thing is that i did i did pick up a, a katsu kitty enabled 3ds as well uh to be able to stream 2d and 3ds games so now i think you know, within the next couple of months, I'll be deep diving pretty bad into the Nintendo DS and 3DS libraries. So, and for my inaugural game that I decided to stream on the DS was a game that I had no idea what it was about. I don't even know where I got this game. Honestly, when I was looking on my shelf, I don't recognize like where I got it from. I didn't buy it. And maybe I picked it up from my brother or somebody, but it was a game called Monster Bomber. Um, and I don't know, you heard of this game at all, Pete? Monster Bomber? Not, I mean, I've probably seen it before, but I have never played it. Yeah, so when you look at the game, I mean, the description, I mean, the, there's no licensed characters or titles, so they're just using very generic, like, character designs. So there's nothing that sticks out there. You check out the back of the box, and it sort of looks like a puzzle game in the vein of Bust and Move, where you're just throwing bombs up at items from the lower screen to the top. So that's all I got out of it, just from the box. But when we went through and played it on stream... I mean, the basic gameplay is that there's there's multiple colors. There's four colors on the lower screen. And what you do is that you tap the stylus on the separate colors and then fling that colored ball up to the enemies. And you're just trying to match the enemies. So you throw a red ball up to get a red enemy. If it hits a blue enemy, then it actually creates like another blue enemy. So, I mean, that's kind of like the basic gameplay. And I thought that's all it was. And even if it was just that, I would have said, okay, here's a $5, like, sort of bust and move clone that get, th- mixes up the... Uh, formula a little bit with these colors throwing into enemies but as i go through the game i realized that the goals they're asking me to do they're asking for like these chain combos and i didn't know what they were talking about so i looked at the manual and i still couldn't understand what like it's got the most complex explanation for some of the deeper game mechanics in this game and little did we know i mean there was a tutorial in the game that i completely missed so i spent the first hour playing it not knowing how to actually play the game so word to the wise definitely go through your in-game tutorials if it's available but you find out that there's, you can actually charge up the ball, like one of three levels. So before you actually flick the ball up, you can tap, you can drag the ball into this like intermediate area. And then you can charge up the ball. So you hold it down for like, you know, one to two to three seconds and you throw it up. It has a different effect. If you hold it down for five seconds, you get this like a third effect. 
And like the combination of the different ways you can throw the balls up, you can basically group the enemies together, like push them around and rearrange them, and then create like larger chain explosions where you can take out like five of them or eight or ten or twenty of them at once. Like I couldn't believe that there was this much technique in this simple bust and move like puzzler bomber game. It was it was yeah, insane. Yeah, I'm looking at gameplay for it right now. It's uh, it's actually kind of cool where it's got the four different colors on the bottom and. Mm-hmm. You kind of have to like be paying attention and be able to flick that certain color up. So you know, with all the bust to move clones out there, this is actually a pretty, pretty different take on it. It's yeah, just that it one little change that makes it so different. And it's just it was insane to me that like even if it had two different ways of throwing the ball, I would have been happy. But to have three different kinds, and they're very nuanced in terms of what you have to do with the three different ways. And even on top of that, there's different ways you can shoot the balls up. Like you can slide to the left and right to give you a straight shot. You can angle them at whatever you know angle you need to get them at those other shots. I, it just it, was, it shocked me how much technique was in this little tiny like n- unknown puzzle or game that I've never heard of. And it looks like the difficulty might get even different because you said there's only three colors, right? Uh, there's four colors. Oh, okay, all right. I was gonna say, <laughs> I was gonna because I thought you said there was. Wait, so when you say there's three ways to flick, you mean like three different ways to flick those colors up? Is what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. Like you can flick the ball up in three different states. Either just like a normal shot, like a straight flick. You hold it down for one to two seconds. You get like a slightly powered up version that can push the enemies, and then the third one that will drag the enemies into the other ones. It's 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 it was really crazy. <laughs> this looks like one of those games where it's just like a third party shovelware type of game, but then when you actually give it a try, it's pretty decent. Which Exactly. That's with, exactly uh, what happened with this game. Lipper so. Critters, which I know you picked up too, that pinball game with the little animals where it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a budget kind of like, you know, kids game, but mm-hmm. I had some to be said outside of it's a, a DS puzzle game, uh, pinball game and with a 3D engine and super colorful graphics. But, mm-hmm. you know, you find these games sometimes that are fun for, you know, an hour and nothing more than that. The most shocking thing about this game, as we dug into it a little bit more, it was crazy because they have these multiplayer modes that have something in there that I've been begging and dying and asking for for years. So you could do local Wi-Fi play with four people, right? But the cool thing is, is that you have a status indicator of each of your players and you can decide like, which character you want to send your attacks to so if you send up a combo you could send the attacks to like specific people and it's like i always thought to myself how come they don't have that in screw over a certain friend yeah so i and then they have additional power-ups and modes in the multiplayer mode like if for some reason this game looks like if you can get four people together to play this game it sounds like the the potential for multiplayer backstabbing is at an all-time high so (laughs) nice um, so recently I also went back and replayed Klonoa Door to Phantom Isle on the PlayStation 1 mm. um, series ever. I personally really prefer Klonoa 1 and 2 over the ones that are on the Game Boy Advance and uh, the Wonder Swan and such, the 2D Klonoa games, or rather the handheld Klonoa games. PlayStation 1 version of Klonoa is still my favorite one, even over the Wii U version. It's just such a pure platformer to me that has almost no problems. Someone asked me in chat while I was streaming, they were like, so what do you think is uh, like one of the bad, like faults about this game? And I struggled to find a fault with Klonoa 1. <laughs> um, 
you know, it uses the 2.5D perspective, so it has that amazing looking 2D sprites on top of 3D backgrounds with the cameras twisting and turning. And, you know, it looks like you're playing a 3D game, but you're really just on a 2D plane that's moving. What was your general take on 2.5D platformers anyways? I mean, obviously you're a big fan of Klonoa, and I think you've enjoyed, like you talked about Pandemonium before. I was playing Spider the other day as well, but I mean, in general, like what was your view on those style of games? It pretty much started with Klonoa. That's why it blew me away so much when I first played the demo disc of it, mm-hmm. is because that was the first game I'd played with that graphic style. And I just thought presentation and the environments itself in Klonoa were just so fun and whimsical. Well, at least in the demo, things go much darker in that game once you start getting <laughs> along in it. Um, but just the look of the sprites, I really prefer the sprites on top of 3D backgrounds more so than the, the 3D polygons on top of 3D backgrounds. Like that, that's something different. So Tomba or Tombi, depending on where you're from, would be like the next best comparison. Or even a game lesser known such as Hercules on PlayStation 1, which uses the same graphic engine to great effect where uh, it's, it's more fluid and uh, detailed sprite animation in a game like Hercules, but it still has that Really, it creates a depth of field effect that, I don't know, it's just, I guess it's just a combination of the depth of depth of field and the feeling of still playing a 2D platformer that really appeals to me. And it's weird because, like, those early 3D games, like, bug that almost feel like it would be the same kind of game, but it's not on that locked left-to-right plane of a 2.5D. I mean, technically, Bug was like a full 3D platformer, but it doesn't have, like, the simplicity and fun and, like, pace of, like, those early 2.5D games that I wish they would make more of, actually. But, I mean, I'm a big fan of those games as well, too. Oh, we won't be seeing them anymore, unfortunately. <laughs> I think that's, that's, we think the 3D platformers are dead. 2.5D is, like, <laughs> dead and buried. Like that was dead ago, before even 3D started, I think. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I love me some Klonoa. It was a lot of fun to play through that again. And I also booted up my 3DS to stream as well. And I found myself completely enamored again with the Taiko no Tatsujin games. Uh, I was <laughs> just like, oh, sure. <laughs> I, I've always loved the Taiko games. I started with Taiko 2 on the, the DS. That was my first one ever. And then I graduated to buying some of the games on the Wii and got the Wii drum set. Uh, like the Taiko drums for that. And, oh my gosh, it's so much fun to play. But I always said that streaming music rhythm games is not always the best thing because you can't read chat. Um, it is pretty tough. But man, once you get going in Taiko, it's so hard to put it down. <laughs> I, I stream Taiko 2, revisiting all my old songs that I hadn't played or heard in, man, like probably eight plus years or so, seven you, years. Did you ever get uh, out to an arcade that had the full size Taiko drum on that? On that? Japan. I played it while I was in Japan. It's so uh, fun! Oh my god, so much fun! It actually hurts your hands though if you <laughs> if you go really fast and yeah. like hit it pretty hard. The it can re- it can really hurt your hands, especially if you're playing without the rubber grips. But oh my god, a, an arcade version of Taiko is I would kill to have one of those things. I mean, I have the I think I have the PS2 version of the Taiko drum, and while it's a good approximation, of, it's just nothing like that full size drum in the in the stand up arcade machine. <laughs> playing two-player and everything it's just yeah it's if you ever have the chance to play taiko and i know there's some machines of it in the west mm-hmm. here and there it's not very common but you can find them uh make sure you do yourself a favor and play yeah, it. just go go to um, asia and they just, still got taiko machines everywhere you, you go to an asia arcade <laughs> and don't be scared off that these are import games they are completely playable without knowing any japanese there's one coming to the switch and you know that the switch doesn't have region protection so that means that you can uh 
import the Switch version just fine when that comes out and play it with no problems. Is that just kind of like a Greatest Hits remix version that they're going to release on the Switch? I don't or know it what be- it is, but <laughs> I haven't looked into it too much, but it's probably just more songs. That's normally what they do. There was a Wii version that I bought that was like all the greatest hits, kind of like a bunch of, like a ton of songs. I never even ended up opening it, honestly. Um, yeah, there was no new songs on it, just as far as I remember. I was kind of disappointed it was only the greatest hits kind of a thing. Yeah, I mean, I'm still going to pick it up because I haven't bought a Tyco game in quite a while, so chances mm-hmm. are a lot of the songs on there I haven't played yet. I know. Uh, it's I also have, a very. I bought a six pack of the PS2 Tyco games. Like, they're all different, like, versions of add ons or, like, like add on discs. I can't wait to run through those and see what kind of songs I they jammed on. I've never played discs. a PSP version of it. The um, PSP the version is the great. Is- I, str- I streamed that a couple months ago, and it was really fun because, like, the fidelity of the music, I feel, is a little higher than the 3DS. And also, like, the, the way it controls and the way you have a, a more widescreen view of the notes coming at you. It mm. played really well. True. I never thought of that, actually. Yeah. That's a very good point. You have a more of a preview of the notes to come because even though that game, I do believe, is very beginner-friendly for a music rhythm game, uh, it can get really intense when you're yeah. playing some of the harder songs. <laughs> no, <so>. it can. <laughs> way actually to play Tyco because wouldn't the PSP screen be slightly wider than even like a normal television or yes, am I wrong? Yeah. Well I mean it pretty much approximates like a current uh, modern 16 by, mi- 16 by 9 display. It's just a little bit a hair over it but it pretty much is the same style view you would get. Okay. So if I do ever see a Tyco game on PSP I might check that out if I yeah. get it cheap. Uh, and then I also played Rough Trigger <laughs> on the PlayStation 2. <laughs> There's this a joke up- coming somewhere. I know that. <laughs> Oh, there were many in that stream that night. I'll tell you that. Um, <laughs> but this is a this is a Ratchet and Clank knockoff, straight up Ratchet and Clank meets Jack and Daxter. I mean, it is looking at a screenshot of this game, a video of this game. It's Jack and Daxter. You're playing as an anthropomorphic dog thing that has uh, space armor on and has big guns that never really equate to much because the starting weapon is the best weapon in the game and every upgrade <laughs> you get is pretty much garbage so you stick with the same weapon the entire time but something told me to stick with this game for the six and a half hours it took me to finish it simply because i like the feeling sometimes of playing a game this was not a great game it was okay the graphics were pretty nice actually uh some of the level designs weren't too bad uh the controls needed a little bit of work it was it was a little rougher on the edges but it it somehow kept my attention for six and a half hours, but I like the feeling of playing a game that I feel like very few people have ever completed. Kind so of uncovering any, this experience. Was there any speedrun potential that? in that 3D platformer? No, not no. at all. I did find a glitch. I was very elated when I found a glitch where I was able to get through the wall, but potential because the movement in the game was very slow. Uh, the levels mm-hmm. were very long and Pretty much a speed run of that game would pretty much be uh, like four hours. I don't think you can complete it much faster than I did. Three or four hours, that's way too long. Um, But it play a game for a live audience that probably no one else has ever done before. You know, maybe I'm wrong, but something tells me no one's ever streamed Rough Trigger from start to finish. So to kind of be able to share that experience and show the really shitty ending that that game had, (laughs) it was a really bad ending. Like, really bad well it's great because everyone in that stream everyone in that stream can say they pretty much have played through you know that game as well and they don't have to do it themselves so was it worth uh the 10 bucks i paid for it worth playing for an evening uh would i recommend it Mm, 
maybe if you can get it for five bucks and if you're a really <laughs> big fan of Ratchet and Clank type platformers. The biggest credit I can give that game is I had a cool mechanic where you can turn into a wolf and you get these oh, okay. cool wolf abilities and attacks. But all the combos in the game felt pretty needless because, well, like you, you know, said, you just do a standard attack and it's just yeah, as like good said, as all the special go back to the original gun, right? Anytime I tried to do a special attack, I would just get hit by the enemies. So I'm like, all right, no point in doing that. Just switch back to my normal attacks. <laughs> which, again, was the first gun, which is kind of odd that that was the best one in the in the game to use. I mean, that's kind of the, the fun of Ratchet and Clank games, right? Like, the, the better guns and weapons as you move through. That was the reason to play through the game for me. There were five weapons in this game, and most of them were useless. Um, <laughs> ammo replenishment. There was a time where I actually had to reset a level because I got to the end. And I ran out of ammo. There was no ammo replenishment. And it expected me to fight bosses and enemies that I couldn't shoot. And I couldn't melee. So I had to reset. And the bad part about this game is the checkpoint system is abysmal. Um, There are levels that last up to 30 to 45 minutes with no checkpoint. So if you die, back to the beginning. (laughs) That was really off-putting. But I somehow powered through it. Uh, Your stamina through those kind of games, Pete. I really admire that. Streaming helps, though. Streaming really helps. Sometimes I feel like if I wasn't streaming one of these games, I would have gave up on it long ago. But because I'm doing it for the viewers, you know, we want to see this through to the end. We got to see. <laughs> that is a very gotta interesting Got to stick take. it through. Yeah, that is Helps something it. for sure that I know that in streaming these games now, I mean, there are so many of these games I would never have given like a second look at. Like, I think I played through Godzilla 2 like a couple of weeks ago on the NES, knowing full well that it was pretty much a slow, bad, you know, mm-hmm. tactical RPG game. But kind of, I powered through it as long as I could to see if it, if it changed up or got any better. Unfortunately, it didn't, but you know, at least I know that now. <laughs> for crazy amounts of money yeah. of the rarity it's like the and worst. as a Godzilla fan as much as I want to own all the Godzilla games I might have to take a hard pass on that one yeah I would highly recommend you skip that one I mean we're both pretty big Godzilla fans I, that's the only reason I bought it but damn that I wish I can get that 80 bucks back <laughs> yeah that's rough uh, what about you any other uh, let's see there was some other games that was basically I two of the games that stuck out to me um actually in this last stream that i was talking about i there was somebody in there that had was having a birthday and they basically wanted to see some atari 2600 games and i said okay let's boot up the atari 2600 because i hadn't i hadn't tried it out in a while the last time i tried to play 2600 games it was a little rough because i don't stream off an original atari 2600 i actually stream it off of ColecoVision. so ColecoVision had this add-on module where you could Buy this plug-in module. It plugged into the front of the Coleco because, you know, the Coleco needed more things to plug into to make it bigger. I have the and, same thing. It's yeah, cute, right. actually. It's like a little mini Coleco. Yeah, it's weird. So, But you plug it in, and it has a slot where you can plug in Atari VCS 2600 games and also Atari 2600 controllers. So I had to make sure that all that was working. So we plugged it in and ran through a bunch of 2600 games. And two of the games... There was two games, actually, that I played. And I'll just describe them both here, but... There was two games. They were both from Activision. One was called Laser Blast, and the other was called Stampede. So Laser Blast in itself, it was kind of like a reverse uh, Space Invader. So you were a single ship, you know, at the top of the screen, and all you could do was basically shoot a laser straight down, slightly off to the left angle, and slightly off to the right angle. And there would be three turrets at the bottom that you'd shoot at. And that's, that's all it was. It was just wave after wave of you trying to kill these three turrets before they shot you. But there was something so simplistic about the gameplay. I and, mean, you know, this is common for a lot of these old games, but I don't know what it was about that game. Because whenever you saw a laser blast, either from your ship or the turrets, it had this strange, like, luminescence 
like quality to it. Like it made it look like a high end modern game effect, this laser. Because in most games you would just see like a single line of color as your laser. But for whatever reason, like the way they had this laser, like the way it was uh the way it was rendered and shot out, it just made it look like a cool laser. And it was I think that single thing that made me play through wave after wave after wave of that game. And after a while everyone in chat was really getting into that game and they wanted to see like the score. Because that was the only thing you know, there's no objective. You just have a score. And we were trying to say, Okay, let's let's aim for one thousand and we'll switch games. And it was okay, let's aim for three thousand and five. So You know, we- I never <laughs> thought of playing Atari games like that because you know, I grew up my first console was a ColecoVision, mm-hmm. and I loved the ColecoVision back then. But since then, I've I've really kind of moved away from like the Atari style, like twenty six hundred games. But mm-hmm. I never thought about how fun it could be to stream it, aiming for high scores. And where it's like, exactly all right, we're gonna <laughs> we're not gonna quit until we get ten thousand points, and you just keep going and going and going. So I think actually streaming might help me. <laughs> Not that I'm going to get into 2600 games again, but maybe yeah. I really have been wanting to get back into Coleco because I know that my nostalgia for some of those games would be a lot of fun to kind of revisit. But streaming those games never occurred to me how fun high score challenges could be. Yeah, I mean, because in that in that night we played through a bunch. Like we just played through Asteroids. We played through like a bunch of these simple, you know, single frame single frame screen games. But the only objective was scoring. People were, and like that that leads me into my last into the last game that I wanted to talk about here. But it was. Um, it was called Stampede. So another game by Activision, and it was a simple Atari 2600 game, and it was thematically pro- proper for my stream. But basically what it is, you're going, you're on a locked scrolling speed going left to right, and you're a cowboy, and all you can do is shoot out a lasso. So what you're doing is you're just lassoing cattle, and that's all it is. As you move, as you move left to right, there's a bunch of cattle headed towards you. And all you have to do is lasso them up. You would think that would be all it is to it. But obviously, the thing is, is that you don't want to let any of the, ca- uh, the cattle get past you. So once three once three cattle you know, get past you, you don't lasso them, then the game is over and you're going to start over. So all you're doing is lassoing them. And what you can do is, as they get closer to you, if, if, they, if you're not able to lasso them ahead of time, you just touch the row of the cows and they get pushed to the front of the screen. So you're just constantly juggling, you know, pushing these cows to the front so you can lasso them at a later point. And... I'm telling you, it, it was another one of those things where it was a very simple objective. Everyone understood it within like 10 seconds. But trying to reach like the higher score, like people were so enthralled in the stream following this like this journey to try to get to, I think the score we were only going for was 1,000 because each cow, there was like a very low number of points, like 5, 10, or 25. And so I just kept, I ran that game for, I think I played for a good like, 45 minutes is trying to reach like a thousand scores so because at some point i just said hey we're not going to get off this game till we get to a thousand so again it was that same effect with laser blast as well no way it's comparable to speed running right where people are so captivated by like you reaching a personal best time where they're yes. just like, this is the run this is the one <laughs> that's whereas you happening. it's like high scores right so you know you now you know what it feels like to speed run a game on stream because oh, like man. you got people rooting for you and then when you finally reach that point where you get that high score it's like oh it was pretty exhilarating, I have to say. I mean, I'm not saying I'm going to jump onto that speed bu- speed running train quite yet, but it was if it was no anything similar to that, in your future, <laughs> it might so be worth it. I've still got a few games here. I'm going to kind of blow through at a fast pace. Yeah, sure, uh, in the interim time. So I also played some Malice on the PlayStation 2. Uh, this game was also on the Xbox and maybe the GameCube, but I'm, I know it's at least on the original Xbox and PS2. Uh, it's another. 
one of those games that came out in the sixth console generation that was just sort of brushed aside, uh, very glitchy, where you play as this punk rock looking '90s girl with her bell bottoms on, her, her, her. I don't know. She's pretty much straight out of the '90s. I mean, she's got her red hair and ponytails. She's got the attitude. She's got the Converse shoes on. Uh, <laughs> 90s you know, pretty attitude. much every. She's even got a tattoo on her back that you can see. <laughs> oh man, that somehow don't ask me how I found it, but I saw it. <laughs> uh, but I was playing this game. I bought it actually for five bucks ship. So I'm like, how can I go wrong? Uh, with the intent of speedrunning it, seeing how much I can break it. And boy, did I break that game. Oh my God, was it fun to break this game. I did an entire stream where I played through it casually, but at the same time of playing through it casually, like a normal playthrough, I was looking for glitches. And oh man, did I find some glitches, like skipping an entire level, um, skipping bosses, well, not skipping bosses, but skipping entire levels, skipping sections that would save me like probably a good 10, 20 minutes uh, playing it normally and it was so addicting to find these glitches on my own because it was a game that has no speed runs uh, it really has no history of people finding glitches outside of like three small little videos that are like 10 seconds each on youtube so finding all these things on my own was just a rush of adrenaline where i'm like man it looks like i could probably glitch here and trying for five minutes and then glitching and getting outside of the boundaries and skipping to the end of the level was just so much damn fun I tried playing this game um, after I ended the stream of it, which took me like six or seven hours. I continued to play it a bit more and look for more glitches, and I did find some. Um, but then I had a test playthrough of it off stream to see if I can speedrun this game, meaning how approximately how long it would take me to do a like a speedrun of it. And I got a half an hour in, and I was still at the very beginning of that yeah. game because... You can't skip the bosses. And the bosses themselves, each one takes like 10 minutes. Why would they do that? <laughs> you can all, well, runners, you know. But the reason why it took so long is because the bosses, you can only damage them at set intervals during the fight. In other words, there's only one set opportunity where you can hit them. Oh, the other okay. times, it's all sort of like, you know, you can't damage them, they're invincible. And then every few minutes, you can hit them. So that makes the boss battles so long. And the beginning of the game is so boring because there's really no glitches. And I'm like, you know what? I might just have to accept that I found a lot of glitches and exploits in this game. And an actual speed run of this would probably not be the best idea. Because it's just so <laughs> such a trodge through the beginning of it. But I'm very proud of my findings. And I would actually recommend this game because outside of the glitching and the speed running, it's got very floaty controls. It's, it does have very odd controls. It looked amazing, though. Graphically... For the time. It looked pretty good. Yeah. For the time. It had a very sort of like blown out look to it though. Like yeah, everything very, was very um, bloomy. <laughs> overexposed, yes. Uh the combat was left a bit to be desired. But the world itself was actually kind of cool. It took you to a lot of different places. You know, exactly what you would expect from a game um from the two thousands that's trying to emulate, you know, the next greatest Jack and Dexter type game. Yeah, Give it a, a try of... if you can find it cheap. It's a very affordable game. And it might be fun for an evening. That game was multi platform, right? PS two and Xbox. Did you which one did you play? PS two version. PS two. Uh, I wonder if the Xbox one is like more broken than the PS two or like there's always a chance that one can have It's a good had question, a but port. I'm never gonna find out because I'm never <laughs> gonna give it that time of day again, yeah. probably. Um I also played a PS two import called Poignier's Poin. This was recommended to me by someone in chat, and I just kind of took the chance and bought it because it was relatively cheap. Interesting thing about this game is it's a Japanese-only platformer, very obviously for kids, very colorful, one of the most colorful and vibrant games I've ever seen visually. I mean, colors that are like neon everywhere, neon greens, pinks, 
oranges. The whole game is just <laughs> glowing with color, more so than like Jet Grind Radio or something. It's really colorful. Um, but the whole game is in English. There's options for what? English voices, That's English weird. text. Everything is in English. Huh. It's actually kind of funny and kind of cool, except for the main character. He's a little, sounds like a little five-year-old kid. Completely in English. What is this game? It's Don't ask me to sum up the story. I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> but there's a hub world that you have to wander around. They have arrows that are showing you kind of like the area that you have to go to so you never truly get lost. Um, but you have sort of like this bubble blowing technique where you shoot bubbles at enemies and um, you combine the different like when you shoot an enemy and turn them into a bubble you can combine that colors three different colors if I remember right it was like green pink and blue if I can recall but you combine those colors and make a different color so that's how you kind of solve puzzles is by say you're fighting a boss and they can only be damaged by yellow bubbles you'd have to combine the blue and the reds to make a yellow and shoot that at the boss Um, you can stand on bubbles, so I was having fun kind of trying to play around with different ways of blowing out a bubble uh, and standing on that and say, like kind of getting to a platform. Colorblind people for that game, I guess. Yeah, I, well, then again, it's so bright. I mean, maybe you can't miss it. Most games are kind of mute in in color and tone. That maybe this game might, maybe it'll break you out of your colorblindness. No, I know so wait, not the main. So the main mechanic, you could you have the choice to blow any of three color bubbles, but you have to blow them out and then combine them to create the other colors. Trying to remember how it worked exactly. It's been a little bit since I've <laughs> Sounds played confusing. It. Certain enemies, if you hit them, how did this work? I think you can choose the color bubble that you were going to blow out. And okay. um, if you hit a certain color enemy with it, it would change the color. So if the enemy was like a blue element or a red element, honestly, I'm having a little bit of a hard time recalling how the exact mechanic works. But yeah. all I know is that, yeah, you can were three different colors and combine them to kind of like solve very minor puzzles and huh. attack enemies and stuff. That actually sounds pretty fun. Uh, the way the po- was named, since I'm sure people don't know how you spell poin is poin, is P-O-I-N apostrophe S P-O-I-N. Huh. And you can't miss the cover because it's super bright and colorful. Now the next game I was going to talk about, we've both played, and that's Combat Queen on the PlayStation <laughs> 2. This is an import. So you, we had both discovered this game on one stream where Stage 1 Boss had recommended it to us. Correct. And uh, we both bought it on the same night. You <laughs> streamed it before I did. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to stay spoiler-free on that, so I avoided <laughs> checking out anything on it because I'm like, this game sounds amazing. You, you lasted as long as you could on that game. So <laughs> it's, a, it's, an, it's a first-person FMV shooting game with insects <laughs> yep. where you play as like this group of Japanese like combat girls in army uniforms it oh, sounds short, really cool you're short it selling is. it there pete you gotta you gotta go into the the level of acting quality for these four ladies <laughs> very very high acting quality <laughs> um usually just amounting to them doing different posts so you'll, you'll be in the middle of shooting so imagine a first person um like rail shooter like you'd find on the wii or an arcade and you'll just be in the middle of shooting and suddenly it'll cut to like a three second clip of them like aiming their gun <laughs> or like turning around and aiming at some other bug and they interject this in with the gameplay which at first I thought was oh that's kind of cute and then by about half an hour in I'm like oh my god not again especially <laughs> because you can't skip cutscenes which is why I got to the final level in this game and had to quit because I kept dying on the final level by falling in a pit that I couldn't see and the final level had like about a 
10 to 12 minute cutscene that you could not skip that starts Ugh. the level. And I just got tired of watching it, uh, despite how amazing the acting was. But eventually it evolves into this almost Resident Evil like tank <laughs> control game. That was the, where you're shooting that was the weirdest person. part of the game. <laughs> oh my god. Bovine's eyes like lit up when I was streaming this part because he's like, I didn't even know this existed. But let me warn you, the gameplay sucked. It was so hard to control. Um, you don't have any way to see which way you're aiming. I mean, at least Resident Evil, you have a pretty damn good idea. And they give you a good amount of leniency in terms of, you know, maybe a larger hitbox than you would expect when you're aiming your gun. But it's, you know, when you play Resident Evil, you can still kind of tell where you're aiming, right? It's not that difficult, even though you don't have uh, aiming ridicule on screen. Yeah, We're I just give the game credit for switching things up. That was shocking to me. I couldn't believe it. But it's such a weird shift where you go from a first-person FMV shooter to... Third-person. Third-person, <laughs> halfway through the game. I can see if they kind of, like, interjected them between each other, like, alternating, but the, just to I go mean, to, like, almost a completely different it game. It takes a while to get to that sequence, too. Like, what, four missions in? It was, um... <laughs> Even more, I think. I think. Yeah, it was, it was a lot. But the best way to sum this game up is if you're looking for a type experience with Japanese girls um, and insects and you're okay with like a 4 or 5 out of 10 experience overall, give it a shot. It's actually not that expensive. I think that's a nostalgic Dan approved game right there. (laughs) Yes. Um, Also, I played more Oh No, another one of my favorite PlayStation 1 import games. Yeah, it's amazing title, amazing music. Oh my god, the music is so catchy in this game. It's very simple. It's sort of like a continuously running or rather jogging dancing your way down this path where you control anywhere between three to i think upwards of five or six characters at once and it's a very simplistic game where it's on rails you don't control the speed at which you move you can only control going left or right and jumping and the uh, verticality or horizontal position of your characters so you can you have to dodge people in the street. It's a very stylized Japanese cartoon, not an anime look, but a very sort of like stylistic Japanese approach to its design and characters. Very much like a kind of like pop art style cartoon where the characters are flat. So think like Paper Mario. But the only thing you do is you have to dodge obstacles. And it's challenging because when you say have three characters and they're side by side, they have gaps between them. You have to align them correctly so that you can avoid all of your obstacles in the way. So say there's like two pedestrians coming down the road, you have to align your characters so that they will be appropriate gaps so that the two pedestrians will cross uh, directly through all three of your characters. Or maybe you want to align them vertically so that they're in a line and you can more easily pass through those pedestrians. But then you might have to be careful because there's uh, a pothole or something that you might fall into as you're trying to maneuver through them. So it's just this very fun, simple, uh, pretty hard and challenging game that has a music that will get stuck in your head even more so. It's all than about Sonic the music R. in that game. I thought it was interesting, though, in that game. They gave you the ability to jump. Like, it could have been a very... They could have locked the gameplay down where you couldn't jump and you just had to constantly reconfigure the line to maneuver through the obstacles. But the fact that you can jump kind of adds another layer of depth to it as well. Jump on characters' heads uh, and get more points that way because it also has a life system where your life is continuously uh, ticking down. You eat hamburgers, you collect hamburgers to keep your life total up. But avoid the fish burgers. A gas total. (laughs) Yeah, so... And then there's fish burgers that you have to jump over as well. So it's it's got just the right amount of variety except between levels there's these really stupid rhythm music games and stuff that you have to play that are just completely pointless and 
just will kill your thumb for no reason. Um, but I would highly recommend that to anybody that is into PS1 imports. It, it sucks too, Pete. I finally, because I, I, after you've seen you stream that game a couple times, like, okay, I gotta bite the bullet, get this game, bring it in, just if not for the soundtrack. But the stupid thing was, I have it shipped, I had it shipped to like an old PayPal address that I used to live at, oh. like years ago. I don't even know what's there anymore, so I don't know how I'm gonna get the game again, so. <laughs> Maybe held it at like a front desk or something or I, anywhere I, I mean, it, it was a residence though right so it would Ooh, be whoever's yeah. living there now and i don't even know i guess i could go over there and ask them but it seems a little weird <laughs> imagine they opened it and they see it and they're like what the and hell they probably, is this and then it. you come over there for <laughs> <laughs> the owner of this thing oh. you know you have this weird ps1 import game with all these like bald like crazy looking japanese guys on the cover <laughs> That's a great transition into my next game, though, because you're very <laughs> thankful that instead of it being... An, you'd probably be happy it was Ono instead of this next game called Dog of Bay. Oh. Because this game is a game where... And it's a dancing music rhythm game that is incredibly weird, and you'd probably get some really strange looks if uh, people saw you playing this, because <laughs> it's got some really jazzy kind of like relaxing music to it for most of the levels and you play as these anthropomorphic even more humanized it's it's such a weird art style because when you think of anthropomorphized animals you think of like ratchet and clank kind of stuff or mm-hmm. like kind of like where it's very humanized people with animal features so their skin color is like a dalmatian print but that's the best way i can describe it is like a more humanized almost like their their faces were painted Kind of like the Avatar blue cats. Yes. Yeah, that's a good way to think of it. Just that their features are even more humanly structured. So that's anyway, bizarre. we're talking more about how weird the characters are in this game than the actual I game. Say, what was the gameplay um, like for the music rhythm part? The really part cool thing that I liked about this game is that it uses the joysticks. You, you have the option of using buttons or joysticks. And I chose to use the joysticks, so the notes are just... It's really simple. You just press up, down, left, or right. But you can use the joysticks so that, say, there's a, an up note or a down note um, on either side. So you might have to press up on the left joystick and down on the right joystick at mm. the same time. Um, and that's pretty much it. I mean, they do give you a warning of what notes are coming in, but they do it in a very... Um, doesn't really lend itself that well to a music rhythm game in that it'll give you about a second and a half two second notice um so you have like these beams of light that will show you direction a note will be coming in the future so it might be like okay up 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 on both joysticks down 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 but you'll see those notes come in far in advance so you kind of have to like memorize all right okay in a little bit here i'm gonna have to press this note and then in a little bit here i'm gonna have to press this note it's not like a traditional music rhythm i mean did it even go to the rhythm of the music it, it went no well it's so hard to describe what's the point then shows you pretty much a preview of the notes to come on a delay so you kind of have to like keep a mental note half in advance of what notes you're gonna have to hit so i pretty much just ended up having to ignore those sort of like tells of what's to come and instead just wait just for them. pretty much had to hit the notes on point like they'll give you a very brief flash right before you're supposed to hit it so i was lucky enough to have reaction time to kind of be able to keep up with that Hmm. not going off of the visual cues all the while there's some weird dog people dancing in the background to some actually pretty (laughs) decent music i wouldn't call it the best music rhythm game music yeah i was gonna say that was my next question how was how good was the music was any of it captivating or stuck in your head there was like some hard rock music depending on which character you chose um but most of it was sort of like this very laid-back 
like jazz is probably not the right word, but it's like sort of like like new age kind of contemporary hotel lobby, like a really high class hotel that's playing like this jazzy piano music. <laughs> with so that's the best way I can say. That doesn't sound like it's really made for a music rhythm game, right? But it's not the entire soundtrack, but it's just a very very strange game. Pretty jarring to um, go from something like that to the heavy metal tracks. <laughs> They were okay. That was actually one of the. It, it was a cheap game. It was like fifteen bucks, and I'd say it was worth it for. Um, there were a couple other games I was going to get to here, but I'm going to just try and highlight. I wanted to talk about. Um, I've been playing a little bit of Sands of Destruction on the Nintendo DS. It's one of the DS RPGs that I picked up, mm-hmm. and planned on playing in full, but it's such a grindy game. This this came out. Uh, to little fanfare when it first came out on the DS. Um, not too many reviews came out on it. They were kind of like mixed. Mostly like 6 out of 10, 7 out of 10 type reviews. Um, great game in terms of its presentation. It uses a lot of... It's a turn-based RPG that Sega put out or published. Um, it's actually... It's on a show. Oof. Yeah, it has full voice acting. The game has full voice acting and story cutscenes. And it's actually kind of decent voice acting. Yeah, it's very and clear these, for DS. Yeah, for a DS, it's not bad. And the, the story cutscenes use camera zoom-ins, so they kind of, like, pray, uh, play dynamically with the camera angle. So it might, like, zoom in the camera, turn around the camera. It just shows you all these different camera angles that even during, like, PlayStation 1 games wasn't that common. You'd usually just get a static camera that would just show the characters talking back and forth. But Sense of Destruction with the extra mile to sort of add this cinematic look to its cutscenes, which I, I kind of found uh, pretty cool for a, a DSRPG. Um, music is really great uh, graphics are pretty damn good the battles are okay so it's the best way I can sum it up is sort of like a Xenogears game without the actual combos if that makes sense hmm. where you have button inputs that you have to do where you choose what attacks you do and in what order you do them in real time but there's really no combos it's not like okay you press this attack this attack that attack that attack in this order and it'll do this super move it's sort of just like luck based where you have an attack that is more accurate but less powerful and a more powerful attack that is less accurate and sometimes based on a certain stat you may trigger um, if you hit a 10 hit combo or more you may trigger a special move that may or may not happen that's Long what story that sounds short. that sounds very close to like the namco x capcom tactical rpg like the battle style the way you can add on to attacks or Project Zone, does, I think those are the same way. Project X Zone, yeah. I haven't played that series, but it does sound pretty pretty similar. Um, you have a three-person party. You can air juggle enemies. Um, it's kind of a pushover. At first, the game is pretty damn challenging, but eventually you realize that you just get so powerful that you kill enemies, and in some cases, some bosses, like, almost instantly. So it can get really tedious and very grindy um, and not very challenging. Uh, the story, though, is pretty interesting. You play as a character without spoiling it too much. You play as a character that um, pretty much finds himself in a situation where suddenly he's able to destroy the world. He doesn't know why he can destroy the world or why he should. He happens upon uh, this character that she's kind of like very much about showing him the world and why he should be destroying it and why he's suddenly like the lord of destruction and uh, why he should hate the world and destroy it and he happens upon a teddy bear character that is a bounty hunter with a really deep voice and an eye patch that's one of the most amazing RPG characters I've ever come across and they go out on this adventure to kind of uh, 
No, it's, it's been a little bit since I've played it, so I'm trying. I'm having a hard time kind of like summarizing say, how specifically. But in a nutshell, that's pretty much the game. And this spawned an, a TV show, an anime. So usually it's the reverse, where a game is based off an anime. But in this case, the game actually spawned an anime that was ten or twelve episodes long. Well, uh, it's, it's, sure, it's a it pretty sure decent game. It beats the save the princess or save the whatever you know storyline. I guess someone who has the ability oh. to destroy the world, being guided. Sounds interesting. And not knowing why that is and why they should do it. And he's sort of like this... Uh, his his personality in the game is sort of like a Debbie Downer is the way that people usually describe it, which apparently the main character is not like that in the television show, interestingly enough. But the reason why I have a hard time recommending this, though, is it's pretty rare, a little pricey. You're going to have a hard time getting it for less than $50, which Oof. unfortunately for the DS, a lot of the RPGs these days are getting a little expensive, some of them, um, as... A lot of them had low print runs, came out towards the mid to late end of the DS's life cycle. Um, now I won't get into it too much, but comparing this to a game like Wizard of Oz Beyond the Yellow Brick Road, which is another DS RPG that I streamed, which was incredibly charming, um, a Wizard of Oz RPG with some really, really nice graphics and music and character designs, a really fresh, unique look at the Wizard of Oz universe done in an Etrian Odyssey style way with a trackball movement system, all touchscreen. That's a big mouthful. That's that was quite the game. Sense of Destruction doesn't compare to Wizard of Oz when it comes to uniqueness and visual style. But Wizard of Oz, they definitely tried to do like some interesting things on top of the standard turn-based RPG formula. So, yeah, that's that's an RPG that really surprised me too because I had always avoided that game due to the touch-based controls. Everybody mm-hmm. was always like, "Oh, you got to move around with the trackball." It's so. I actually found that the trackball system heightened my enjoyment of that game because it was so unique and so fun to be zipping around the levels and like dodging enemies with a virtual trackball if i was running through those environments with just a joystick it would have been so boring Boring, but the fact that i was able to control it in a way that i had never played an rpg before maybe it overstated its welcome a little bit but the wizard of oz rpg had a very very fun in my opinion movement system uh the whole touchscreen thing though having to play the game with a touchscreen and the battles was a little bit irksome because going through a menu for multiple characters using all touch-based controls with very little icon like very small icons for commands was a bit much after you know the 20 something hours or whatever it took me to beat it 15 20 hours uh, but I would definitely recommend Wizard of Oz to any RPG fans I mean, on the DS you would think when they try to do things like that like mix up standard um like navigation of menus, they would they would put in some type of usability test or some you know screening or beta testing or something where someone would have said, hey, maybe this is not the best idea to use this everywhere in this game. <laughs> but it's like I one of the things about in, investigating like a lot of the DS and 3DS games, not like I'm really looking for innovative uses of the touchscreen because obviously when the system first came out, like when the DS first launched, like well, that was the big thing, obviously, right? Hey, touchscreen at the bottom and here's some innovative controls. And you remember like that first launch wave of games? Like there were some interesting uses of touchscreen, but then mm-hmm. like a lot of developers got lazy and just used it as a second screen and barely there was innovation for the touchscreen. So that's what I'm excited to, like when I hear about games like Wizard of Oz, how it uses that second screen for something that actually involves the gameplay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they are. It's it's actually harder than you would think to find a DS game that uses that bottom touchscreen for something beyond just a map, like you said, or a mm-hmm. touchscreen. But when you do find them, they're usually quite a magical experience. Like Hotel Dusk mm-hmm. uh, yeah. is one that always comes to mind for people that use the dual, not just the touchscreens and the, but just the dual screens in general and the the DS system as it's as a sort of like not even a gimmick but a gameplay element itself if you haven't played that series before you know that 
talking about anything that that game does uh, would would be a huge spoiler. So um, yeah, I can't wait to go through it. I got it in that lot a couple weeks ago, so I can't wait to go through those games. Like those adventure, the novel adventure games, and how you flip the DS to the side, so you're reading it more like in a book format and interacting with the with the screen on the touchscreen. I just wish there was so. I wish that more developers would have worked on games like that, right? I mean, another sometimes it's just good enough for a game to utilize both screens where both screens are actually the game so it's sort of like you're playing on this really Large extended screen. vertical yeah. screen uh, you know the best game that always comes to mind for me for that is yoshi's touch and go which is a very early ds game where you're just uh it's sort of like a kirby's canvas curse type experience where you're mm. just guiding yoshi by drawing lines of clouds underneath him and throwing eggs but because the gameplay extends to the top screen it's such a unique experience that feels almost arcadey in a sense, um, and it's kind of unique to the DS because you're not really, unless you're playing, say, a game on the iPad these days, or your phone, where the gameplay might encompass a very large vertical screen. But back then, it was very innovative. Yeah, like Way Forward did a lot of games like that, right? Like Contra Four and Alien Infestation make good use of like both screens, like especially Contra Four because it does give you that arcade aspect ratio of using you know the top and the bottom as the full play field. Mm-hmm. I mean, not to downplay anything that uses a map on the bottom screen because it can be very, depending yeah, on the game, yeah. um, like a Castlevania game, for example, those games utilize the second screen for the map and the menu system and everything. It can be very convenient to have that mapped out, uh, no pun intended, on the on the bottom <laughs> screen for you without having to constantly press like a start button and go into a menu and go through your items that way and view the map that way. In a game where you're constantly referencing a map, sometimes it is nice to kind of have it on a secondary screen yeah at like all switching time. switching items is a big thing i thought that was a very good usability thing but i don't know i would have always preferred just more gameplay right on both screens but it depends and on the problem with the 3ds is that because the top screen is a different size than the Ugh. bottom it's a little bit harder for them to kind of find those games that utilize that dual screen at the same time gameplay like a, a yoshi's touch and go kind of thing because the top screen is obviously wide and the bottom screen is in a more four by three aspect ratio. So usually in 3DS, you're going to find almost every game is utilizing that sort of map, map. Or menu on the bottom <laughs> screen. Yeah. yeah, that's too bad. But I think we're pretty much drawing to a close here. Um, that about does it for the first episode. Please let us know your feedback. And we're also going to elicit questions from you guys. So if you, have, <laughs> if you have any questions for us, gaming questions um you can send them to retro game explorers at gmail.com that's the email that we're going to be using for now and then to the foreseeable future you can submit them there we cannot promise we'll get to every question but we will you know field through them and pick out some of our favorites or ones that we think would make a good discussion for the podcast um and fit as many as we can into episodes in the future. Just a reminder, this show is available on iTunes as well as SoundCloud. And you can find our SoundCloud address at soundcloud.com slash podcast. Very important that you put the podcast in on the end of that as well. Um, if you ever have any questions or concerns or ideas or anything like that, send it to the email or while we're streaming, feel free to, you know, let us have your feedback there as well. But any official questions that you'd like answered, please send it to the email. This is also currently a bi-weekly podcast. That means that it is currently once every two weeks. That could change in the future, depending on how things go on uh, both of our ends in terms of availability. And, you know, we'll, we'll see how it goes. You know, let us guys know what you want to see for this show. Um, 
any ideas we're also i would just like to throw this out there um if any of you are musically inclined we would love to have a little music jingle for the start of the show even if it's just a little five to ten second thing so if any of you are decent in audio production and you want to make us just a little intro song in your best capability you know uh voluntarily you can submit us your ideas or email it to us or shoot us any messages with uh anything that you're thinking of that you think might suit our show and i want to head so, off all you thank trolls you very much i yeah. want to head off all you trolls now you will we will not be accepting any intro music that is just that 10 second loop from resident evil game boy color version <laughs> just letting me know now <laughs> oh my god yeah that would that would probably scare off more listeners than anything. <laughs> maybe you put that as the outro then <laughs> <laughs> all right well, thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks, Bovine, for joining me on this venture. I think we're going to have a lot of fun, and hopefully everybody enjoys listening. Yeah. Thank you very much, Pete. Thank you for all the listeners, and hopefully we'll see you guys on the next podcast or in stream.